This episode of the Order 66 podcast brought to you by the generous donations of Kevin Malone, Donald Weller, B. Witzel, Andy Bethel, Darren Hampton, Trevor Hill, and William Sullivan, as well as lots of viewers and listeners like you. My name is Mila, and I never listen to the Order 66 podcast because I'm too busy playing. Hi, this is Rikoshi. And I never listened to the Order 66 podcast, because ever since GM Chris introduced me to the joy that is fried pie, I haven't been able to do anything but shovel them in my mouth constantly. Oh, God. Why do we not have this where I come from? Hi, my name is Aaron, and I never listened to the Order 66 podcast because I hear it's good. And as we all know, good is dumb. This is Dark Mask, and I'm calling just to say that I never listened to the Order 66 podcast. Greetings, I am Darth Pseudonym, and the Order 66 podcast is far too evil for even me to ever listen to. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. Broadcast live, you're listening to the Order 66 podcast. Brought to you by Gamer Nation Studios, D20 Radio, and Wayne Basta, author of the Aristia series of novels. What's up, Gamer Nation? GM Chris here, and for those who may be tuning in for the first time, welcome to the Order 66 podcast, the OG original podcast entirely devoted to Star Wars role-playing. And I am joined tonight by the two men with the two biggest plans to make this just a very planable, plan plan of a thing. Uh, my, my wonderful friends and co-hosts, uh, GM Dave and GM Phil. How you doing, boys? I love it when a plan comes together. I love it when a plan comes together. And by plan, you mean... Um, <clears throat> yeah. What do I mean? What? What? I'm not sure, actually. I didn't know where I was going with that, so sorry. Well, I don't guess. talk if you don't have something to say. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'll tell you what. I will say, listen to this. <laughs> this is about par for the course, but uh, how you guys doing, man? Getting by, getting by. You getting Fair mad? Fair to Midland. Fair to Midland. I had a phenomenal day because my baby girl turned five and had her birthday party today, and it was just awesome to see a five-year-old girl jonesing about dinosaurs because that was the theme of her party. So it was all good. Ooh. Oh yeah, nothing she, wrong with that. Nothing wrong. She wants to be a paleontologist so bad. She's just like, oh yeah, she's all into it. That is cool. Yeah, but uh, speaking of all into it, all all into it. Um, you know, if y'all were better parents, she'd already be like in the fourth grade. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I know. <laughs> if only, if only I was a better parent. <laughs> I, mean, I expect her to graduate high school at twelve. So I don't know what you're waiting for. Um, good question. Gosh, I don't think I could. I don't think I can handle that. 
I don't think I can handle that. I don't know. My, my kid's smart, but I don't think she's that, she's that smart. I don't know. Maybe maybe our guest graduated high school at 12. Max, did you graduate high school at 12? Were you one of those prodigy kids? I was not. You were not? Oh. See, now I'm disappointed, man. What the F? All right. You know what? Thanks, but no thanks, Max. I appreciate your time, but really, we only want a prodigy on. That's kind All of... Right, I, I, can, I can understand that. Okay, yeah. 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 Well, um, well, we got Sam's number. We'll call him real quick. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. I was going to say, I know he's up on a lake somewhere, so I'm sure he's... Uh... He's got his tablet or something. Uh, one of your 10,000 lakes, yes, indeed. <laughs> oh, man. Well, uh, that voice you're hearing is, of course, our special guest for the episode this evening. Uh, we are very proud to welcome for the first time to the Order 66 podcast. And it's been a long time coming, man. Sam Stewart's been trying to get you on for like a year and a half, over a year and a half now. Mr. Max Brook um, of Fantasy Flight Games, sir, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on. It's great to be here. I'm I'm glad I'm glad you're here, and you're going to be at Gen Con coming up too. I'm so anxious. I'm not going to be there, but I know I think Dave's going to be running a game with you. I think I will. Be, well, maybe either him or Sam, one or the other. Okay. Yeah, I I don't actually know. We haven't figured out which uh, which of us is going to be doing that one in particular, but one of us will be. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. I get to shoot the wheels off another one. <laughs> yeah, fear the Dave. Good oh, lord. I gotta get back to Gen Con. It was too fun. It's fun, but Gamer Nation Con is more fun. Uh, yeah, what? True. I that said it! What? You said it, and I agree with it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, man. All right, well, Max, we're so glad you're here because you're gonna help us get through our meat of the show today, where we're going to take a deep dive into Desperate Allies. So, thank you very much for that, but... Before we get there, um, we do have a fair bit of announcements we need to cover, and then we're going to dive right in. So without further ado, guys, let's move into announcements. Hello there. What have we here? Good news. Announcements. Phil, buddy, you want to tell us about the feature podcast of the week? I can. Uh, this week's feature podcast. Do you love some live play podcasting? Oh, good. So do we. Look no further than D20 Radio's most irreverent and informative dorks on the interwebs, The Gathering of Dorks. The boys re- recently released episode 25, showcasing their live play of Savage World's Weird Wars. That is one great-ass setting, friends. Yeah, it is. Uh, Great show, as usual, and it'll keep you laughing. Cold beer is options and highly... uh, uh, Sorry, cold beer is optional and highly recommended. Also, the dorks do a lot of Star Wars live play as well, and their latest director's cut episode, number seven, The Vunshun Initiative, left many of us wanting due to the poor sound quality of that live recording. Well, the boys have remastered and re-released it, so if you had any trouble listening to their last uh, last time that episode was on, download it again. It is eminently more enjoyable. Find this and many more great podcasts at www.d20radio.com. Ugh. Chris won't admit it, but the dorks doing that gave him the idea to do that with a, with our last show. You know, and, and that's that's kind of a... You know, we, you know, I don't have that announcement, so we may as well call an audible on that. 
Um, Go for it. I mean, so two episodes ago, we had episode 56, uh, which was uh, We Find Your Lack of Campaign Disturbing, which was a four-hour godsmack of weirdness with, uh, as usual, Sam Witwer giving us the crazy weirdness. Um, it was a Witwer show. Of it course was a, it was four hours. It was a Witwer show. Of course it was four hours long, right? Um, now, we dropped some serious knowledge when it came to campaign building, but when I we kind of went back and listened to it, it was just like... We had so much fun in the conversation. We had a lot of sidebars. It get, got the meat a little disjointed at times. So we took the time to go back and actually recut the first ever Redux episode of the Order 66 podcast. And it's actually up on the feed. It's episode 56, Redux. Or the original episode 56 is still up there in all its glory, but we have released a condensed version that is two hours long, just under, and is nothing but the meat with all of the extraneous conversations edited out. So what you're saying... Is we got our meat, it was too rare, we sent it back to the kitchen, the kitchen cooked it up some more, and it came back well done. Oh, yeah, yeah. I um, I like my meat rare, but some people like a well-done burger, so, you know. There you there go. You go. It's, it's, it's there. It's there. It's done. Yeah. So, anyway, that's out there, guys. Um, another thing out there is convention time. Uh, Dave, man, I, we talked about it earlier, but of the three of us, you are the one that's going to be at Gen Con this year. It is true, and we are locked in. Thank you to everybody who has RSVP, RISAVIPT, gotten your plus ones in. We are locked in and loaded for the D20 Radio Meet and Greet. This is going to be 6.30 on Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, a little more than 72 hours from now. So less, actually, you know, how that goes, whatever. Anyway, Old Spaghetti Factory, 6.30. And... We will have a few friends of the show. Hopefully, Max, if you guys get in early enough, you guys are uh, definitely accounted for in that spot. We'd certainly so. like to be there. Um, it'll uh, depend on how the bus ride goes. Yeah, I know. That happened last time. And I think uh, if I remember right, Kat and Sam and everybody showed up like um, maybe 15 minutes after we got seated. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was bam, bam. <clears throat> you know, we hadn't even gotten our drink orders in and they got there. So yeah. it was all good. Yeah, Hopefully we, that'll yeah, happen had, again. We had uh, we had a bunch of people in the department in a van last year, but we're all on the bus this year, so uh, we're going to be subject to the whims of fate in that regard, but hopefully it all works nice. out. Well, we'll see. Hopefully, we'll be there for a while, so hopefully uh, we usually cut it off, and uh, that way Sterling and a few of us get to go to the Diana Jones Awards, so... Um, um, We'll, we're usually there till I don't know, it's eight thirty or so, and I think the awards start at nine, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's good stuff though. I'm uh, yeah, I'm 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 just I'm I'm jealous because I had I mean just just for that gathering alone. I mean because I know last year, I know Sam and uh, even Jay Little showed up for that, um, and and then Sam Stewart and uh, Andy Fisher and Zoe and Cat Ostrander and um and I think we did I think we had some of our OG like. Watsy buddies show up too. I mean, and, and and freelancers. I know Sterling Hersey came out for that. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, and this this has expanded a little bit to more mainstream game designers. So like Joey Vigour, the guy that uh, that did Chaosmos, he's coming. Awesome. Um, Matt Forbeck is going to come at least for a little bit because he's a he plays a real big part in the um, Diana in Jones. the Diana Jones right, stuff, right? And a few others that uh, that I've kind of made friends with. So um, and a couple of guys from the DFW Nerd Night too. So it's good, dude. Yeah, I, I cannot. I, I cannot express how how envious I am. Ugh, gonna miss it. But um, speaking of envious man, and speaking of the aforementioned Sterling Hershey, 
Um, talking about juicy bits of web goodness, um, we're returning to Sterling Hershey's Star Wars Wednesday's blog. It's been far too long since we checked back in with the Mac Daddy of Star Wars RPG designers, Mr. Sterling Hershey, and his Star Wars Wednesday's blog. But we have good reason to, because this week, as Sterling uh, has recently been interviewed for StarWars.com, um, and he was interviewed by John Morton. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I'm like, I didn't even know he was like an interviewer for Star Wars. And for those who <laughs> may be scratching their beards, um, John Morton played Dak in The Empire Strikes Back. Um, very briefly. Yes. Very, <laughs> <laughs> very briefly. <laughs> uh, very, very briefly. So it's kind of a, it's a really cool interview article. Um, check it out at StarWars.com or just head to SterlingHershey.com to find out more. But um, we also have some FFG news, don't we not, Phil? Oh, that we do. Uh, recently, uh, Fantasy Flight Games released their latest in the series of articles about the Force and Destiny Core rulebook, Powers of the Force. Uh, prepping us for the imminent release of said Core rulebook, they uh, dropped another article written by, ironically enough, Max Brook, highlighting the use <laughs> of Force powers in the game overall. Um, Max, you did a great job discussing the duality of the Force by highlighting specifically the heal and harm Force power. And kudos to you, and good job there. Um, but you can find that article and many more at www.fantasyflightgames.com. And oh yes, that book is almost here. <laughs> so close. Um, various sites have advertised a release date of July 31st. Um, that makes sense. It lines up with Gen Con quite nicely so that all of us who are not going to Gen Con can console ourselves by diving headlong into this wonderful black five-pound book. Um, so hopefully by the next time you guys hear us live on the interwebs, you too will have your own copy in your hand. And speaking of getting a copy in your hand, Chris... I'm looking at Dave because he's probably stroking it lovingly, aren't you? That I am. See, <laughs> these wonderful people that are Fantasy Flight, you know, people that we know and love so much, they've sent us a pre-release copy, and I have it, and we're going to give it away. And I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, we want to send a special shout-out to Cynthia, we're looking right at you, by the way, in case uh, you know, this podcast is required reading, so uh, I know you're listening. And so, you know, let's say you don't want to pay for your own copy. Let's say you just don't have the cash right now. Let's say your wife is uh, really holding the purse strings right now, or your husband, if you're a girl gamer. Hey, you know. Maybe you just like free stuff. I don't know. You know what? And Maybe you want a fourth copy of the book. I'm, you know. Maybe you do. Maybe you want one special that is, um, you know, it looks like all the rest, except you know it's special because it's free and it came a few days early. So that being the case, again, thanks to Fantasy Flight, you will have the opportunity to win a copy of the Force and Destiny core rule book right now. Well, at least in the next two weeks. So yes. how, you ask? Of course, it's going through your head. We're going to do a contest. Why not? We always love contests. And this one is easy. This one requires you to pick up the phone or pick up your mic or whatever and record a liner. Your long-time listeners, of course, will know this deal, right? I put five liners at the top of the show for a reason. 
<laughs> yes, just so you know what the format of these liners are. And yes, I know it's old. I never listen. However, it's still good. Like like <laughs> fine cheese and wine, it gets better with age. <laughs> thing, so we want man. your best liners. They don't have to be the best produced. We're looking for funny. So if you got background noise and hiss, yeah, we'll just have to deal with it. But if it's funny, you win. Funny, creative. Creative, yeah. And Mind we are blown. the ultimate arbiters of what is funny and creative. So, you know, what's funny to me may not be funny to you. Yes. You know, so toilet humor, go for it. I like it. <laughs> anyway, we need to have the liners in before Friday, August the 7th, because we need to listen to the liners, and we will pick the winner and... Our next show, which is, I believe, on August the 9th, we will be announcing the winner. Indeed. All right, so how can you get the liners to us? Well, you can call the D20 Radio hotline or you can email them to us. That's easy, right? The easiest way is to email mp3s to gmchris at d20radio.com. He will be the one to take them. I'm going to be gone at Gen Con. Email them to gmchris at d20radio.com. In the subject line, please put D20 Radio Contest in the subject line so he knows not to erase them or go buy them as spam because we get a lot of spam. Yeah. Or you can call them directly into the D20 Radio hotline, 262-D20-RADIO, 262-320-7234. You guys get to going. There is no limit as to the number that you can provide. However, we will just pick the funniest, and that will be your entrance. And if you go too crazy with it, I'm just saying I may get bored with you. <laughs> that's right. That's right. See, that's that's the whole clause, right? We will go until your story, a story becomes tiresome, in which case you get deleted. There you go. Oh. So, Max, I know, like, because you're a newcomer to the show. I mean, like, the Order 66 podcast has been around for seven and a half years. And in our early days, you know, we only had a handful of listeners. And so for our listener liners, the whole joke was, you know, I'm so-and-so and I never listen to the Order 66 podcast. If we'd go somewhere offside and we'd get a liner from a developer or a designer or somebody famous, of course they never heard of us. So it's I'm so-and-so and I never listen to the Order 66 podcast. And it's just stuck. So It's a good bit. I, I like it. Um, I was going to say I, I had uh, had picked that up from context on the starting liners. I'm, I'm looking forward to coming up with my excuse for why I never listen to you guys. Well, dude, you've got a couple hours to think about it, so... <laughs> I, I will, I will. Although, no promises that I'll come up with anything clever. Uh, well, you know, we won't hold you to clever, just classy. That's all we ask. <laughs> oh, well, hey, you, right. may, you may be hosed, then. <laughs> hey, hey, steerage is a class. <laughs> steerage is a class, Steerage right. is a class. It is a class. Oh, man. So, Phil, have you been checking out the d20radio.com lately? I have, and there has been some awesomeness up there on that website. Um, while you're at your computer recording your liner, all you uh, all you fanatics out there, check out the best gaming blog this side of the Corellian trade spine, d20radio.com. It is your source for the best gaming advice, articles, reviews, and fan-generated content on the web, all written by members of the Gamer Nation just like you. Highlights for this past week... Linda Winston treats us to a well-done review of Keith Kappel's Dead in the Water module from the Age of Rebellion Game Master's Kit, which we dug into with Keith back in episode 37. Learn what you need to know about this great adventure and get the kit already. And by our editor-in-chief, Wayne Basta, he blows us away with his own buying guide master list 
for the X-Wing Miniatures game. If you're thinking about getting into competition play, or even friendly play, but you're daunted by the options, Wayne lays it out there for where your money is most well spent. And finally, don't forget the fan-generated Star Wars Rebels sourcebook. Last week, we gave Steve Orr, also known as Jasper, he had, we had him on to talk about his new fan-created sourcebook with the help of many folks throughout Gamer Nation and the FFG community for Season 1 of Star Wars Rebels, called Spark of Rebellion. Updates have already been made, and over 1,000 of you have already downloaded it. Head over to http rebels d20radio.com to find it. And I have an find update. It all. That's, that's cracked 2,000 already now. Are you really? Sweet. Oh. 2,129. God. <laughs> they got a winner. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Yeah, anyway, you can find it all right now at www.d20radio.com. This is very nice. And uh, one more final announcement, guys, that is a good one. Um, so many fans of D20 Radio and the Order 66 podcast have been showing their support for the network and the blog over the past few months by contributing literally just a few dollars a month on our Patreon site at www.patreon.com slash D20 Radio. It literally keeps the servers on, but more importantly, gets our blog authors paid for their work. But we are announcing tonight two brand new Patreon contributor levels, which you should jump on pretty quick. They're limited. They're limited. Well, the second one is. The first one's not. The second oh, one right, is, right, okay. right. The first one, um, it, it basically, if you think I'm a neat guy, you should pledge for this. <laughs> this level is GM Krish's secret stash. Let's say you have $10 a month to support D20 Radio, and you want to gain access to a super secret private Twitter account run by me, an account where at least guaranteed three times a week i will post my gaming brain droppings star wars news tips and ideas you can be a part of that exclusive club baby for ten dollars a month on your pledge you can have exclusive access to my private twitter feed gm chris's secret stash and i will lay it on you um with my usual um uh silliness i think uh but also hopefully informativeness but wait there's more this last level, and this is the limited one, and it is extremely limited, um, is the surprise level. Uh, surprise! Super surprise! Our surprise level. This is our top level, guys, and we just added it after actually talking to some of our fans and listeners and kind of jumping on this idea. $30 a month. If you are willing to contribute that to this network, you can be a part of something really exclusive. You and five others like you, this is a six-person uh, level will take part in a once-a-month surprise RPG session. Run on Skype on the third Saturday night of every month. The six of you will join a surprise GM, either one of the podcast hosts on D20 Radio or staff writers for D20Radio.com, to play a surprise RPG one-shot game. Will it be Star Wars? Will it be 5th Edition? Rogue Trader? Savage Worlds? 40K? Joy? Uh, who knows? Who will run it? GM Phil? GM Dave, GM Chris, Wayne Basta, Keith Kappel. You will not know until the week before. Hence, the surprise. But um, seriously, guys, if you want to support D20 Radio at a higher pledge level and, and get a guaranteed RPG session every month with a known D20 Radio face and voice, this level is for you. And again, there are only six spots. And Dave, when are these new pledge levels open to the public? 
They are open immediately right now. I just made them live. Oh. That's right. So our live listeners who have joined us in Echo Base may have an advantage on this. But, uh, yeah, seriously, um, hop to it, guys. Uh, Patreon.com slash d20radio. Um, hopefully this is something you guys can really enjoy. And I am so tickled to do these monthly games. I am very, very excited. So, yay. They're very excited. They're very excited. So, yeah, you guys, you know, obviously keep up with us on the Patreon, but you can keep keep up with us in many other places as well. Facebook, you can catch us, D20 Radio. You can catch us on Twitter, at D20 Radio. D20 Radio, actually, that retweets all the hosts for the Order 66 podcast and some other select voices as well. And we send out show information and announcements pretty regularly. So you guys keep up with that. And, of course, keep in touch with us. At 262-D20-Radio. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> now, uh, before we get into the meat of the show, which is why we have the wonderful Mr. Brooke here to speak with us, we're going to stop down for approximately one minute to check in, of course, with our SWRPG Adventures, the most informative 140 characters or less on the net, with SWRPG's Adventure of the Week. Welcome to Star Wars Adventures of the Week, brought to you by SWRPG Adventures on Twitter this week. Coruscant's planetary computer system is ancient, maintained by a secretive cult-like cabal whose leader, One PC's father, has gone missing. This has been Star Wars Adventures of the Week, brought to you by SWRPG Adventures. For more adventure ideas in 140 characters or less, be sure to follow SWRPG Adventures on Twitter. And remember, keep adventuring! Man, I like that idea. It's nice. It's very nice. Well, I like the idea of, and I find it interesting. It's like when you talk about, especially Star Wars, with some of the the planets like Coruscant or some of the incredibly old worlds that are these massive, you know, city planets. That yeah, there's are, a few of them. There's a few of them. They're like they're they're tens of millennia old, and they've got this. You know, all, I mean, what does the infrastructure of that world look like? How ancient is is it? What does it take to maintain it? Who maintains it? Um, I don't know, but I've seen some of the lower <laughs> levels, man, and they are tough to get around. Whole bunch of guys named Zathras. <laughs> Zathras fix pipes. Zathras fix lights. <laughs> but no one likes Zathras. <sighs> wow. Sorry, I've been on a bit of a bad five kick lately. Wow. <laughs> That's a uh, wow. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, guys, yeah, head to Twitter. Check out SWRPG Adventures. It's good stuff. All right, Dave, Phil, Max, are you guys ready to get into the meat of this here show? Ooh, I am. You are. Well, then let us do it. Yeah, bring it down. You got your glow sticks, Dave? Yeah. Uh. What? You know, I, I can't help 
I can't help opening this book and seeing John Stevens and Brenders and Linda Whitson, Majeski, uh, Kevin we'll, Frame. We'll come there. We'll come there, man. Oh. This is okay. So we are here tonight to talk Desperate Allies with its 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 lead developer Max Brook. Um, with a little meat segment, I think we're tentatively going to call "You Have Made Me Very Desperate." Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> in my head, I'm going through Sam Jackson and Avengers. Yeah, yeah. You have made me very desperate. Um, nah, maximum meat. Maximum meat. Ooh, that's a good one. Maximum meat. Um, so I, I love it when we get the chance to dig deep into a new book release. And, and, I, and I think we all love it even more when we're graced with the presence of a talented designer who really helped bring that book to fruition. And that book is Desperate Allies, the diplomat source book for Age of Rebellion. And that man is Max Brook. Um, new voice to the show, uh, who is an RPG producer at FFG and the lead developer of Desperate Allies. And Max, you now join the likes of Jay Little, Sam Stewart, Andy Fisher, Katrina Ostrander, Zoe Robinson, Keith Kappel, and Sterling Hershey in the Rogues Firing Gallery of the Order 66 podcast. You are now D20 Radio's own Max Brook. Well, I'm in good company then. Oh, yeah, yeah. You need to be careful. It's about to get messy because we, we, we have plumbed the depths of the interwebs and we have gathered listener questions and quandaries to toss at you like so many greasy thermal detonators. And hopefully we will all survive the blast as we examine the details of Desperate Allies tonight. So, um, tonight, <clears throat> tonight, 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 tonight. Um, before we begin our discussion of Desperate Allies, um, I really want to take it to the max. Um, ah, I, <laughs> I see what you did there. See what I did there? Uh-huh. See, see. Okay, when my wife found out that you were going to be on the show tonight, she said, what's his name? I said, Max Brook. She goes, that's like, that's like, that's an awesome name. That's like, that's like Max Power or Brock <laughs> Sampson. I'm like, <laughs> it's like Max Brook. Um so yeah, so you, you, your name has kudos for my wife. That's a, that's good. That's a good. That's a good thing. It's, it's that's good. It's, that's good. That's an auspicious start. Yeah, it, it is. It is. Um, but I, I want to get to know you, the man behind the voice, because we've never had you on the show before. So I want to take just a few minutes to really talk about who you are and 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 what do you do? I mean, some of our listeners might not be familiar with your works, Mac. Work, work Max. Tell us. Tell us about yourself. <laughs> your work, your Max, work Max, Max. Your works, Max. 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 Yeah, so uh, so I've been with uh, FFG for uh, for a while now, um, since uh, 2011, uh, and um, I was hired at a pretty exciting time because I was hired just when we were really getting into the swing of working on Star Wars stuff. Uh, in fact, I think um, Edge of the Empire was not even yeah Edge of the Empire was not out yet because I wrote a little bit for it. And that was one of the first things I did. Um, uh, so that was pretty cool. Got to started the company when, you know, X-Wing was in playtesting and the Edge of the Empire X-Wing? was X-Wing. Oh, sorry. Uh, I was like, whoa, hey, Marvel coming in. Wow. That's, yeah, no, none, none of that. So um, we so we have that from you then, that FFG has the license to the Max Marvel says products. Max says Marvel property is now in production at FFG. Get to the Twitter, boys. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, but anyway, uh, they, you they, realize if that was actually true, Steve would like be emailing us right now saying oh, cease and desist. Oh, he would. He would. Um, but fortunately, it's not. So uh, anyway, um, yeah, X Wing, Edge of the Empire. I've gotten to see Armada through development, which has been cool. Um, and yeah, so I've worked on a bunch of uh, 40k roleplay projects. Um, first book I worked on was the Soul Reaver for Rogue Trader. 
Um, then I worked on a bunch of Rogue Trader books, a couple of Only War books, um, and uh, some Dark Heresy Second Edition. I um, I worked on uh, Forgotten Gods before passing that off to Tim Huckleberry to finish up. Um, and then I jumped onto Star Wars stuff, and I did the uh, Age of Rebellion beginner game, and then I've been doing Star Wars supplements since. Nice. Dude. Dude. Um, That's a career path that I would like to have. <laughs> no it's problem. a career path I like having. <laughs> Excellent. So, as far as, uh, as, you know, so that's your work history. What about your gaming history? Uh, when did you first start role-playing? Yeah, so I actually didn't start role-playing until college um, because uh, wow. I never had anyone who would play with me prior. Um, uh, so I played a lot of Magic in high school, played uh, Warhammer 40K, played for a number of board games, um, but I never really had anyone who would uh, who would, you know, go on that journey with me into into the dungeon, as it were. Did you play um, Magic? I played a great deal of Magic, yeah. Um, it's weird. It's almost unheard of to have folks who only play Magic and, you know, to find folks who play Magic and 40K, but they're not willing to do role-playing. That's odd. It was the jump too far. Um, I think the other problem <laughs> was that uh, it was, um, you know, everyone was busy and committing to a weekly thing was hard. But mm. taking, you True. know, an hour over lunch to play a game of Magic was pretty easy. True. Uh, True. As long as it didn't really matter when that was. Um, but anyway, in college, I found a bunch of roommates who were willing to um, put up with me uh, as GM. And so I just uh, jumped into it, started running 4th edition. And uh, then I ran uh, Dark Heresy and other 40K role-playing lines. And uh, it sort of spiraled out of control from there and ended up as my job. Wait a second. Fourth edition was out while you were in college. Uh, yep, I'm Jesus, old. I feel old. I'm so old. God, it had just come out. If it makes you feel any better, <laughs> actually, no, 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 not really. No, it not really. no, it really doesn't. God, I'm old. All right. So speaking of gaming, uh, and and now you're working on Star Wars. Do you get a chance to play Star Wars uh, currently with your excessive work schedule that you have? Yeah, um, we try to have an office game going most of the time. We had one that just wrapped up uh, a month or two ago. Um, and then I am in a uh, monthly game that uh, Sam Stewart is running as well. In addition to the, well, the office game isn't going on right now, but it'll probably pick up soon again. Um, so I'm currently playing, uh, I I've outsourced my character concept to Twitter a while ago. So I am now playing uh, Whom, the Thorian entertainer who is an ex-rock star. Yes! That is awesome. <laughs> he must rock at the mic, man. <laughs> he can blow the speakers out even better. That's awesome. You know, the, you say that, and the funny thing was, I've, I've been thinking this whole time that you sound like somebody else we've had on the show, and it's Andy Hurley is kind of who you sound like. Who Just is, a little bit. I, I I should know this, and I don't. Who is Andy Hurley? He's not Andy a, Hurley yeah. is the drummer for Fallout Boy, who was here last night, Chris, and you didn't go. I know, I know, I know. I couldn't go. Um, I know. Yeah, he's, he's not a gaming voice. He's actually the the drummer for Fallout Boy, and he's a massive RPG nerd and a massive Star Wars RPG nerd. And we've oh, that's awesome! Yeah. I didn't know that. We he, should. I'll talk to. Uh, I'll talk to Cynthia about sending him a beginner game or something. Oh, I'm, so, I think he's already got everything. <laughs> is he already in deep? Well, excellent. That's even better. He's he's like he's really in deep, and and he's like he's the only man I've met that's been on MTV Cribs. So his um. 
Like yeah. he, he he dropped. I mean, his gaming room. You don't even you don't even want to know, man. He's got one of those Sultan gaming tables. You know. Yeah. Oh man, those things. The like three thousand dollar tables. Yeah. Seven. 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 Yeah, it's it's freaking unbelievable. We uh. Yeah, my wife loves going to see him because last time we got to see him, she tripped, literally tripped over Jason Derulo. <laughs> nice. Jason Derulo. Sorry, I can't, yeah. I can't do that. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, you do, You like, dude, like, audibly, you have a striking sound to Andy Hurley. It's very strange. Um, very, very. Of course, cool. he's the drummer, so he, you know, backup vocals every once in a while, but, you know. True. So, okay. All right. All right. All right. So, anyway, I've got to ask something. <clears throat> I have to jump in here and say, well, actually, never mind. Scratch that. Favorite play moment. Oh, Favorite play moment? Yeah. Hmm. Just like, that's a that's a pretty open-ended question. Like, broadly or, like, with this particular character <laughs> no, I'm within, playing? Star, Star, Star Wars. Wars. Star Wars. All right. So, all right. Well, okay. So, within, within Star Wars, my favorite play moment. Um, uh, and I, I blame this partially on myself and mostly on Sam Stewart, who was GMing at the time. I was playing Crandak, the Trandoshan doctor, um, who had been, and I had been making a bunch of jokes about Crandak Clan- tr- cloning himself. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just can't get over Crandak, the Trandoshan doctor. <laughs> so anyway, I had been making a bunch of d- jokes about Crandak cloning himself. Um, and... Uh, and uh, so this was this was right after I had started at the company, so like 2011, 12 or so. Um, anyway, so Sam was running this game, and I kept making these jokes. And Sam, you know, I played them like they were just this like throwaway, you know, like oh he's a mad scientist, he's getting up to all sorts of nonsense. Well, at the end of the campaign, a bunch of clones of Crandak bust in and save us. So you know, <laughs> that's. My my question to you is: If you ever lost someone while trying to save them, did it count toward your score? Uh, Crandak was an atheist. Um, oh, nice. Uh, he was also. It was ambiguous whether he was actually like culturally Trandoshan or not. He may have been raised elsewhere. We, his backstory was sort of ambiguous, and all I believe the furthest point back we had established about him was that he was thrown out of imperial medical school um for reasons that uh, he claimed were you know obviously uh racism but were <laughs> probably more to do with the experiments getting loose <laughs> early early cloning stages basically he cloned his arm it's easy for a trend ocean so you know um i i hope it was only that it was <laughs> it was probably worse <laughs> nice Oh, good stuff. Shall we get to our first listener question? Oh, oh yeah, well, this is a hard-hitting question, too. Oh, yeah, I'm excited about this question. I've been thinking about it since I since you sent me the list. So. so, now that we know more about you, Max, this leads up to our first question. True to form from longtime listener, Away Put Your Weapon. He strikes with the first of our many hard-hitting questions. I must know Max's favorite type of pie. High theory of game design and all. Very important if I'm going to be role-playing a diplomat in this setting. Hmm. Pumpkin pie. Yes! Go. Ooh, that's a good one. That's a good one. That's a good one. It's a seasonal one. It's a very seasonal one, yeah. I'm trying to think. Stewart's was pecan. And um, I believe yeah, that someone's was right. peanut butter. Yeah, that was fish. 
fish versus peanut butter. Fish, fish was, yeah, fish would be peanut butter. There's a place we go for pie occasionally, and they have a peanut butter pie, and it it tastes great, and then you feel like death. <laughs> hey, you know, and forgive me, but have the have the hosts revealed their favorite kind of pie? I don't think so. I don't think so either. Mm. What's your favorite? Funny that away put your weapons never asked us that. Yeah, thanks. Away put your weapon. What's your favorite? Jesus. What's your favorite kind of pie, Dave? Me is lemon meringue. Really, mm, that's a good one. Either, well, and and you know it depends on the it depends on the point in my life. Sometimes it's lemon meringue. Sometimes it's banana cream pie. Just mm, depends. Oh my, Filbert, chocolate. When the chocolate is nice and cold and an Oreo cookie crust with a nice layer of thick whipped cream on top and chocolate shavings, not sprinkles, actual chocolate shavings on the on the whipped cream. Oh, dude. Very nice. Um, I'm going to be yours. I'm going to be the weird. It's a tie. Um, Either uh, like I can't. A pecan pie is just, it's unholy awesome. Oh, okay. okay. I thought you were going to say, like, rhubarb or something. Well, no, no. So my other pie is a really weird one. Um, it's a southern thing. It's um, it's a, a sour cream pie. Have you guys ever had sour cream pie? No. Actually, yes. It was good. Yeah. So you, know, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's my favorite, favorite thing. It's almost like a custard kind of pie, but it's, um yeah, it's really, really, really good. Wow. Huh. It takes dollop of daisy to a whole new level. Yeah, it's, it's just amazing. So, anyway. Okay, well let's <laughs> let's get into this book because um, we have a lot of questions to get through, and we're really talking about this this amazing source book, which I am holding in my hand, and I kind of wanted to kick it off really by talking about some general questions about you know production and overall design, you know, really just getting into the development of the book itself and its design choices, and I've I've got to just stop off before we get into this and say first off. Huge shout out to our numerous Order 66 podcast alumnus, um, both big community members and longtime non-listeners who helped playtest this book. Specifically, Matt and Amanda Pruitt, uh, Dylan Witsit, um, Jonathan, Donovan Morningfire Stevens, Eric Ogan-Brenders, uh, Linda, Zarissa Whitson, um, uh, Kevin Rikoshi Frain, and our very own host, GM Phil Mauski. Did a so good a job, they gave me an extra A. <laughs> oh, did I misspell your name? <laughs> it's all right, man. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry about that. It's cool. It's cool. It, 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 the people get th- – it's weird. You are the first one who has ever thrown in an extra vowel. Usually someone <laughs> takes a look at that last name and goes, no, that I has got to be a J or something. And they'll throw that in. Majestic. I've never had an extra A thrown in. Extra A. Okay. Well, you know what? Um, if you – if you do another book, uh, I will not only reprint get that send it fixed. Back. Well, that will go in the reprint notes. Um, I'm going to highlight oh, cool. that right now in the PDF I have open. Look at that! Uh, I'm saying the container's going back to China. But what I was going to say is, uh, yeah, no. But what I was going to say <laughs> is, uh, not not only will I throw that in the reprint notes, but uh, I will make sure that you get the nickname Extra A. Next time, All right. you're in one of my books. I, I can't remember the other producers. That but. is now your call sign. Extra A, sweet. Extra A. Oh man, you be like, be like, it can be like fives from from Clone Wars. We can call you A's. We can call you A's. Yeah, very nice. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> Huge props. You know, we've we've seen some of our community members in long time, uh, Order sixty six ites. Um, you know, be there as playtesters uh, before, um, and in some cases as as developers. Um, but uh, this was this was like a laundry list of Order sixty six folks. It was kind of cool. So uh, big props. So okay, general questions: production, overall design, Max. What sources of inspiration fed into this book? Because, I mean, like, like at a glance, social encounters in action seems to be kind of an overriding theme of inspiration here. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, the original trilogy, the prequel trilogy, the Clone Wars, all those things were, you know, they, they have a lot of politics going on in them. A surprising amount for a series of movies about space knights with laser swords. Um, but uh, we also wanted to, you know open things up as well because it's a role-playing game. And so we're really interested in pulling in inspiration from all sorts of political dramas. So, you know, like there's a couple couple huge um, – uh, uh, Katrina Ostrander, in fact, a huge, you know, like West Wing fan. So I went to her and I said, you know, like what sorts of things do you want to be able to do when you're playing a political character? You know, like what sorts of, what sorts of roles do you want to be able to fill? Um, I think her answer had something to do with backstabbing. But uh, <laughs> I would have gone for Lord John Marbury. <laughs> so anyway, um, so I, I went around the office, and pulled people like her, like Dan Clark, people who I know are really interested in that. You know, it, I am, too. But obviously, I wanted to get a you know diverse array of opinions. And, uh, sure. you know, so talk to some of the, the people who are working on Game of Thrones stuff. Obviously, that fits well as well. And, you know, just to get lots of lots of ideas. But, uh, I mean, we can draw our, our, you know, all our root inspiration comes from the show. Because with the Clone Wars, there's so much content, so many, you know, different storylines they pursue that it's sort of, you, know, you look at the broad tropes and then you're like, okay, well, where did they explore that in, the, in Clone Wars? Because they did it somewhere. And then we see, like, okay, that's what that looks like in Star Wars. So. Yeah, that's a good thing of having, like, five and a half seasons of the Clone Wars to dive into because they really did run the gamut of all kinds of story types. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. really did. Clone Wars is is a great uh, expansion of the way Star Wars tackles theme, uh, and Rebels has been too so far. Um, I've really appreciated that. Obviously, we didn't get a lot of like grand sweeping politics in Rebels, but we have gotten a bit about how the Empire's internal politics works. Um, that wasn't so much a factor on this book because it was before it was going on mostly before I had seen that because it was before it was out, but. Uh, but uh, for future stuff, you know, Rebels has been a huge source of new ideas for us, which is great. Well, okay. Now, I, I want to build off that, okay, because – and maybe jump just a tiny bit ahead in the notes here because we have a question that really does kind of relate to that from Imperial Dalian. Um, brought us a question about inspiration. He said, obviously, Age of Rebellion is set during this classic trilogy era, but the political themes are much more prevalent in the prequels, he says, than in the original films. So, I mean, building on that, was it difficult to find the right kind of Star Wars-specific thematic inspirations while staying within the game's, you know, mandated era? Mm, it, it actually wasn't. Um, so one of the big things about that is, um, you know, politics is very important to the original trilogy. The characters are fighting for fundamentally political goals, you know, freedom, equality, all that, even if it's all the backdrop to this hero's journey for Luke that's going on. Um so, you know, that definitely factors in. I mean, the other great thing is the Clone Wars is recent history. All of the things that we have happening, you know, 
that we see in the in the Clone Wars and the prequel trilogies, that's all still going to be on. There are lots of people who lived through that. That's still going to be, you know, like relevant. So the great thing is we can draw inspiration from those events and then sort of put them more in the feel of the original trilogy era. So, you know, in the, uh, you know, the conflict between the Empire and the Rebellion and say like, okay, well, how would that affect this, you know, this thing that happened before? Like we saw how things were. We know that it's an era of oppression now. You know, like what's different? What might be... What might be different, but it'll still sort of echo with what happened before. So it's pretty easy to pull that in. I mean, it would be harder to to go, you know, like way far back in the timeline and pull stuff in. But when it's only twenty, you know, twenty years before the the story, it's it's right there. Cool. Um, yeah, and I. I... I kind of agree with you. I, I don't know. I mean, I understand the mandated era of the, or it's not, I, don't, I don't. I think that's a poor choice of words. The assumed era of these books, okay, of this system is obviously the classic trilogy. But I, I mean, I don't know, Phil, Dave. I've seen many examples in the books where it's clear they're leaning on inspiration and ideas from from the prequels and from from the Clone Wars itself. There's a lot of instances in the books where they're clearly drawing from the Legends eras as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, well, like the great thing about Star Wars is that you know there's this incredibly diverse base of things to draw from. So you know we have we have the Clone Wars, and we can say, okay, you know, like this sort of they explored this environment in the Clone Wars. We can probably extrapolate what it'll be like, and then you know LFL tells us if we're wrong. So, <laughs> like, like they do. Um, yes. <laughs> Leland and Pablo looking over your shoulder. <laughs> oh, they're great. They they are they're great to work with. No, I I, I know I, I I haven't had much interaction with Leland, but I know Pablo is a, is amazing, fun loving guy. I'm amazed that he's now like in the fold because I remember when he was just an eager writer, you know. <laughs> um, so good for him. So. Now, what about the book itself? What were there some of the design goals for the book? Was it, you know, just make talky characters more interesting, or did it run deeper than that? Well, I think it did. We really wanted to explore the nuances of the talky character. Um, so we wanted to give people who want to build talky characters some interesting choices. Um, because in, in the core game, you know, in a- the core Age Rebellion, uh, we have... We have three, you know, solid, interesting options for talky characters, plus maybe some things in the spy, uh, in the specializations that exist. But at the end of the day, it's sort of an archetype, and you know, like you have this set of abilities, and your your choice is: do I want to play a talky character, or a sneaky character, or a fighty character, or these other things? So as we do with all these supplements, we really wanted to branch out and say, like, okay, but what is there within the realm of archetypes of talky characters? You know, there's there's the talky character who's talky because they know everything, and so that became the analyst. There's the talky character who's talky because they, you know, like, they're really good at supporting other people and also undermining other people, and that became the uh, the advocate. Um, you know, there's the talky character who's all about, like, spinning things the right way and, you know, controlling the message, and that became the propagandist. Um, on top of the sort of, you know, charismatic leader type who's covered in the core really well and the, you know, like... Uh, political mover and shaker who's covered the core and the uh the quartermaster who's um the the one of my favorite talkie characters actually um because the quartermaster is all about getting you know like one person within this organization to uh 
properly coordinate with someone else within this organization when the organization is more of a loose coalition of people upset with the system. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so GM Lance has a follow-up question. Um, he's got a design question for you. Of all the source books, I imagine this one, more than most, would present some unique and special challenges with balance and content. What were some of the unique challenges you came across when developing and playtesting this book, and what new insights into the game did you personally discover? So one of the things that I definitely found is that there, as compared to, say, combat abilities, there were not that many social skill-related talents. Um, there are a fair number, but uh, you know, there was a lot of design space there. So one of the neat things was getting to really delve into that and say, okay, you know, we have, we have things, we have scathing tirade, which lets you, you know, put strain on people really effectively. Uh, that's great. Um, but we don't have anything that, you know, like explore, you know, like explores, you know, what else you can do with strain on people in those encounters. Um, we don't have anything that, uh, you know, plays with the ability to, um, use your, you know, like communicate your knowledge to make other people more effective. We have some command abilities that uh, let you, you know, like make people more effective because you're inspiring them. But we don't have anything about like giving people ideas and helping them act more effectively. So there was a lot of a lot of design space. So there ended up being a lot of new talents in this book, uh, even as compared to other comparable supplements. Um, yeah, there were. <laughs> uh, but I, I think that's a I think it's a good thing here because now we have this, you know, like wealth of social talents we can go back to and say, okay, you know, in the future, all right, well, we have these, you know, because the great thing about specializations is just ordering similar talents in different ways can create a really different specialization. And then, you know, we add a few new exciting things. But here we didn't really have the library in the same way we do for combat. So we sort of had to fill that out more than normal. But that was great. I really enjoyed that. I love doing that. So... And, you know, one of the uh, – there are no other cl- careers like the diplomat out there. I mean the closest could be the colonist with the politico and you guys you, – you sort of took the politico and the scholar and just ran off on a tear with it. Yeah, I mean the marshal a little bit, speaking of the colonist, the marshal has a bit of similarities to some of these things. Sure. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, it's true. The colonist encompasses a lot. I mean, like you know, the entrepreneur, the performer, the doctor. There's there's a lot in there, and it's a broad range of things. The it's almost generic. Out, it's almost generic out, outer rim townsfolk person. Yeah, a bit of that. Um, it's it's very much. I mean, like the one place the colon the the really uniting thing of the colonist. I think um, I was just looking through the colonist book again recently, actually. And the one really nice uniting thing I think is the motivations. Or the colonist is about creating something. Sometimes yeah. that's wealth. Sometimes that's you know like health. Sometimes that's community. But the colonist is really about building something up. And you know the diplomat is very focused on like this social. You know, very focused on the social, whereas the colonist is, you know, like, has some ways to use social to do that, but it's a bit more of a, you know, it's just one angle of attack. Well, man, you, man, you, you like, you framed that beautifully. I hadn't considered that before. But yeah, when talking about the fact that you don't have this massive, like you do for combat, library to draw from, one of the things that I guess it didn't really dawn on me until now is just the sheer amount of new talents in this book compared to the other source books. But yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So... Mm, come at to come at it from that perspective. Interesting, interesting. Um, 
So the blasted samouflage has a more detailed question somewhere along these lines. Uh, but first he wants to ask, uh, uh, can you give me a copy for free? He knows the answer to that. He, he had to I just say, he knows the answer to that question. <laughs> Actually, uh, Blasted Samuflage, you could get a copy for free if you send you in a really, could. really funny and good liner. Hey, that, that's go. a good answer. That's better than the one I had. There you go. <laughs> uh, okay, how about this one? Which is admittedly more of a generic question about the lines. With the new status of canon versus the old Legends material, how do you decide what to include, knowing that things might change? For one example, the A-Wing being manufactured by Kuat rather than some rebel hidden shipyard. Has the design process been affected by having to go through this additional approval? So basically, uh, my answer to this is, is very simple, um, and it's that our process is as it has always been. Um, LFL reviews everything we put in the books, uh, and they sometimes come back to us with things they want us to change, and we change them, and that's pretty much that. Um, so, not the most interesting answer, but uh, there you have it. Spoken like a true diplomat. <laughs> so, hey, I want to switch gears for just a second and say that the art, of course, is... As usual. One might even say breathtaking. It's just mm. great. Ab- absolutely, absolutely beautiful. Zoe. I mean, as usual, and of course, props to Zoe, who I heard is not going to be at Gen Con and made me sad. But we do have a question around this from Crazy Birdman, and he asked that he just found out that one of the artists, Anthony, I guess this is hopefully it's Fody, put a picture of Mirax in one of the books. Maybe that's unofficial and just who he envisioned her to be. But is any of the art in this book supposed to be another Legends or or EU-type character? Well, so in terms, from my end, I can tell you that when... When uh, I put together the the art uh, briefs that ended up uh, that I went to Zoe with and met about and we you know talked about and put together into something that she then passed along to the artists, um, none of them were. Uh, but the artists draw their inspiration from lots of different places, uh, and the EU included, and a lot of them are big fans of Star Wars lore. So it's certainly possible, um, but I uh, don't specifically know of any. I'm sorry, man. Page 56. I'm just going to firmly believe that that is M-Tray. M-3PO from the X-Wing books from uh, Mike Stackpole. That's what I'm just going to go with. <laughs> Certainly could be. <laughs> that's cool. Uh, that's not. That's that's nice art. Well, okay, d- nice dude, art. Max, did you have a favorite piece in this book from an art standpoint? Oh, absolutely. Um, my favorite piece is the piece on page... 79. Ah, I just a, opened that one. <laughs> of a Wookiee smashing a table. Um, and you know what really sells that? You know what really sells that picture? It's a giant bowl of Cheetos that's being launched <laughs> into the air. Yeah. I, 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 I love the giant bowl of Cheetos. I love the wine glass spinning out of control. Um, no, I've, I've wanted to go in there and like Photoshop on some, some Star Wars stuff so it looks like you know they were playing a game and the Wookiee got mad. It's a book. <laughs> Change the wine into Mountain Dew, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I love that piece. Um, and it, it's funny because that piece, that piece got like increasingly out of hand as as the process went on because you know when when I first met with uh, with Zoe, you know, like we talked about it, and we came up with the idea for this piece of the Wookiee, you know, flipping over a table. Um, and, and originally the Wookiee was flipping over the table. 
And then, you know, much later on, uh, she came back to me with a piece and, and the table was now just annihilated. And I was like, no, this is way better. Um, so as usual, Zoe worked her magic and worked with the artist and came out with something great. Uh, better even than I envisioned. This is, but the, you know, the great. thing that gets me the funny, <clears throat> the subject is great. And obviously the, the story it tells is fantastic. But even the attention to detail in the background I mean, you can tell that those are different races way back in the background. You know, it's obviously you're kind of seeing through to a lighter part of the area. But, I mean, that's the level of just sheer awesomeness that I'm talking about. Yeah, like Zoe I, and our artists do a fantastic job, um, and all the art coordinators. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, you know, it's it's great stuff. Couldn't ask for better art. Okay, I'm looking like I have my favorite piece. And it is actually at the bottom of page 35. Yeah. Lance um, was just talking about this in Echo Base. Like, th- this is, um, th- this, uh, on the bottom, of it, like, it, it's, it's the, it's the Mon Cal who's draping the blanket over, obviously, the two kids who have just suffered some horrible tragedy, um, likely at the hands of the Empire. And what I love about this is zeroing in on that young man, or it could be a young woman, uh, just with short hair, but I think, I think it's that young man's face, that hardened, just, hatred that's building kids got the thousand yard stare they just that thousand yard stare it's like oh motivation for joining the rebellion like in a picture in one picture it's just absolutely beautiful i Um, i I think this is one where i'm trying to remember exactly the the details but i I think in the meeting zoe just basically suggested this piece and i i seem to recall she basically described this and then this came out and it's awesome so that that one is this one is like pretty much completely on her, even more than usual. And as soon as she said it, I was like, "Yep, that's perfect. Let's do it." And so you know, yeah, that's it, incredible. Yeah, she 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 really gets results, and you know, a lot of pieces are are just she'll we'll go into a meeting and we'll be chatting. She'll be like, "Oh, what about doing this?" And I'll be like, "That's way better than I the idea I came in with. Let's do that instead." <laughs> I, I think this was one of them. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal piece. I'm trying to show it on the webcam right now because um, they're asking in chat, but uh, uh, my webcam is a bit grainy. Mm. But yeah, dude, it's uh, good stuff. Did you two? What about you two? Did you guys have any favorite pieces in the book? Dave? The most iconic one to me was, uh, I forget what page it's on. It's somewhere around 50 or 60. Um, the recreation of C-3PO and R2-D2 with Bib Fortuna oh, coming into yeah. Jabba's hut. Uh, top of page or Jabba's 50, Palace. Uh, top of page fifty-four. Nice. You can go. You know, you should call Jabba's Palace Jabba's Hut. <laughs> so this piece was actually um, a. This is a Macquarie. I was about to ask. That's a Macquarie, isn't it? It is a Macquarie. Yes, we we have access to some uh, old pieces. I'm sure you've noticed, um, and You're we've okay. used Macquaries in a few places where they're appropriate. And this was. A perfect one where we didn't really have cause to use this anywhere else, but it fit perfectly here, wow. and it's a gorgeous piece. See, yeah. see, Dave, it's not a reproduction or recreation. Wow. No wonder you like it so much. No wonder it threw me <laughs> back into the old, in the old days. Yeah, we, we, we try to use those really sparingly, but every once in a while, it's like, oh, this is the perfect place for that. Let's use it here. Wow, so. that's great. That's great. Yeah, it, the, the old Macquarie stuff is wonderful. It just has an atmosphere that is <clears> so... You know, I mean, obviously it looks like the movies because the movies look like it, but it, it just captures that so perfectly. Mm. Yeah, that's just gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. 
I think mine is the two-page spread on 42 and 43, the chapter uh, billet for the tools of intrigue. Just oh, yeah. aesthetically, color-wise, the, the, the scene and emotions it evokes, it's this... I love I, I I love the costuming. I love the the pose, the the look of determination of of stalwart. I have got to convince these people of my point of view. It's just crazy good detail. It's a beautiful piece. Totally is. Mm, mm, good stuff. Good stuff. Okay, now this might be a bit preemptive, Max, but as we're we finish up on just overall production discussion. Let's talk about your favorite part of this book. What is your most favorite thing that we may come to in detail um, found in Desperate Allies? A ship, a piece of gear, a species, a specialization? In other words, what made you just giddy when it got to be in this book? Um, I'm really happy with how the... Let's see. I mean, there are, there are a bunch of things I'm pretty happy with, but I'm really happy with how the analyst specialization came out. Oh. Another great, um, really great piece of art too, and uh, yeah, you know, and uh, and I'm glad we were able to do something sort of new and different with a knowledge skill based character, and also really go in, go all in on you know knowledge skills, and mm. make that you know take that in some new directions, uh, both mechanically and thematically. Um, I'm very happy with how that came out. Mm. Beautiful. I, I think yeah. I think the the second pick, the thing I was uh, wrestling with was would probably be the unmatched insight signature ability. Yeah, I'm I'm very happy with how that came out. Um, it's the it's it's so signature abilities, and we can talk more about signature abilities later. But signature abilities are supposed to be a tool not only to help the players but to also help the GM. Um, because by giving the players a degree of sort of giving them the reins a little bit in the narrative, it helps the players take the story to where they're interested in, which is not always an easy thing to get out of players when you're GMing. <laughs> no, no um, it's not. So giving them a means where they could sort of feel like they can do that within the rules, it can be really useful. I've had good luck with it. I mean, it's why, you know, one of the first house rules I played with in in fourth edition was uh, drama cards, which you know let players sort of do little things and change the universe in ways and such. And signature abilities get at that, you know, in a really big splashy way. Um, but this one's nice because it helps it helps the the player say to the GM, "I'm interested in this scene. Like, I want to know about these particular things." And then the GM has the opportunity to like respond and go into detail on things that the GM already knows the player's interested in. Dude, yeah. And I, I, I want to talk about I want to talk about that signature ability specifically when we get to it. And I think that's actually maybe guys a, a perfect segue to get into talking about the character options, all right? Um in the book. But before we do, we had one final listener thing we wanted to bring up. Um a final kind of note on overall production. It's not a question but a comment that was very telling and we wanted to share it with you and the gamer nation at large. Uh, coming from GM Lance who said uh, said to you, he said, Mr. Brooke, I didn't originally plan to pick up this book right away, as there are others I'm saving up for, but instead, but after I saw you'd be on the podcast, I picked it up, and as I continue to read through it, I am very glad I did. With the right GM and players, I see the content put forth in this book can be used to flesh out some truly epic games in ways you, you don't usually see, so thank you. Um, that's, that's such a great thing to hear. I, I really appreciate that. 
So, and Lance is in chat, so he's hearing you. I, <laughs> I was going to say, I was just checking. It was Lance in chat? And yeah. Yes, you are. Well, yeah. thank you so much, Lance. That's yeah. that's the sort of thing that makes you know makes us you know keep at this and such. So great to hear that. You know, I I kind of want to second that because as as you guys know, Chris and and Phil, I'm I'm not a huge face character. No, they're, they're your le- they're your least favorite. They are and. But now, and and I can say this now without even a smirk or anything, being uh, being able to GM in this system, it opens possibilities that just take the game in, in so many more interesting, not necessarily different, just more interesting directions. So, so many times players just want to run and gun, shoot them up, and, you know, ask questions later. This, I just... I find it not only does it allow the player to be more engaged, it makes the GM more aware as well. Word. I'll go with that. Word. Well, let's, guys, let's dig into character options, shall we? Species, specializations, talents, and all the stuff that's kind of in that chapter. Let's let's kind of dig. Good old chapter one. Good old chapter one. Let's let's talk about this. Um, I guess starting with, with, I want to talk duties and motivations. Um, so, <laughs> yes, duty. Thank you. Um, so, oh, oh uh, if you ever have Andrew Fisher on again, if you didn't already talk to him about that, you should you should bring it up with him again. He loves hearing. Oh about yeah, that. no, we we had we had we, a, we, we had a twenty minute conversation with Fish when we went over the AOR core rulebook about duty. Um, but, but seriously, bring it up again. He he loves hearing about that. <laughs> <laughs> we spent we spent fifteen minutes at the Annie Awards talking about duty last year. Pretty much, Captain. I am detecting sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, there are uh, Desperate Allies has two new duty types um, that that aren't in the core rulebook um, uh, uh, for AOR: operation planning and communication facilities. F- facilitation, um, and these are on page seventeen. They're very interesting, and I mean, in some cases, there's kind of some clear inspiration. I mean, uh, operation planning. That make, makes me immediately think of, of Akbar and Maydeen, like working to develop this massive singular plan of attack. And it kind of it kind of smacks back to what you were saying before about being this character who's trying to wrangle basically herd cats that are all operating independently with a goal, but in this very loose, you know, rebellion of an organization. Um, communication facilita- facilitation is very odd. Um, and I like odd. It's like it's a duty that to me like clearly calls out, hey, there's a problem with the rebellion, and, and then your goal is to fix it. And it's very related to operation planning in that sense. You know what I mean? I mean, what were the, what was the goal or inspiration behind these two? I mean, what can you tell us about these? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I, I did not actually. I can't tell you the exact goal because I didn't write these myself. Uh, Rome Reginelli, who's one of our uh, freelancers, did. Um, but. Uh, I can take a, a stab at it um, because I know him fairly well. Um, Rome is a really insightful guy, and he's really good at seeing both the strengths and the weaknesses of things. Um, and so I think he really hit on something with, you know, necessarily the rebellion is, you know, it's very, it's a, it's a scattered organization. It has a lot of personalities involved at a lot of different levels, and it's an organization that is by its very nature going to as a strength, have a very diverse set of viewpoints, but as a weakness, have a lot of trouble getting all its ducks in a row. 
Um, and so I really liked his insight in, in including these duties. And so I made sure they, you know, stayed in the book. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, I think it works really well, especially in a book about politicians, because politicians always, you know, sort of by their nature have to operate within flawed systems. And so, you know, this idea of like operating within a system that, you know, that isn't perfect and even a, a strength of the rebellion can also be a real, you know, vulnerability too. So, you know, dealing with that and making sure that you get the most out of the strength without, you know, without suffering from the weakness is important. Mm -hmm. How do you see these new duties fitting into other careers? I mean, if at all. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, operation planning would obviously fit very well into a commander. Um, I mean, that, you know, what you're describing with Maydean and and Akbar, I'm sure, would required as much, you know, military intelligence wrangling as it did, uh, you know, political wrangling to get everyone there. Oh, yeah. Um, it also works well with an ace uh, in the uh, squadron leader specialization, or it could even work well for a soldier who takes charge on the battlefield. Um, communication facilitation obviously works well for a commander. It could also work really well for a spy who has to make sure that classified intelligence gets properly distributed without leaking. Mm. Um, it could also work for an engineer who has to keep everyone in, a, in 50 different places appraised about research breakthroughs or keep a project with lots of different people involved on task. You know, you have these corporations um, who are all involved with the rebellion at various levels and, you know, making sure that, like, you know, some breakthrough income has made is getting used somewhere else might be the plot of a session for an engineer character with this as a duty. So lots good. of opportunities, I think. Good suggestions. Very good. Um, do you guys want to skip ahead a bit and talk about motivations while we're in the, uh, you know, duty motivation area? Yeah, that seems fair. Well, Phil, you want to you wanna take that one? Yeah. Desperate Allies has an entirely new set of motivation types presented in this book. Um, both uh, These are on page 36. We have the creed. Uh, sorry, we have the creed on page 36. There's 10 new creed motivations here. Now, we've seen this pattern before, and Max, we'd love to hear your thoughts on what prompted the creation of this whole new set of motivations. What does creed embody where beliefs did not? Well, so I think it's it's an interesting thing because creeds definitely stem from beliefs, um, but they are a little different. Um, creeds uh, embody a level of examination and codification that beliefs don't necessarily have. So beliefs stem from feelings. You know, they're these strong, innate desires to see justice done or freedom upheld or peace created or, in the case of criminal, maybe make a lot of money. Um, but... Uh, but uh, creeds are much more structured. Um, you know, they're generally more concrete than beliefs, and they sort of and they try to offer up logical reasonings behind the emotional response. So, you know, a belief might be, I, you know, feel something inside of me when I see injustice that makes me want to act on it. But a creed would tell you would go, try to create a model that says, well. I feel this way because, and then, you know, use logic to create a, a reason that that is wrong and, you know, a model of right and wrong more broadly than just going on your gut instinct. Um, and this also makes it more limited in some ways. Um, creeds have to stand up, you know, if you're going to build a creed, it has to stand up to a lot of internal scrutiny. Whereas, you know, if you're just acting on your instincts, you're not necessarily going to question yourself in the same ways, um, which is a good thing and a bad thing. Um, so it's, it's, it's a different way of looking at this. Um, but it fits well with politicians because again, you're dealing with people who are, you know, 
not necessarily that who are not dealing, you know, with a, an ideal situation and who are probably going to be very personally aware of the limitations of their situation. So it makes a lot of sense that they would start to build really codified, you know, ideas of what is what is right, what is wrong, and what do we need to do to make the galaxy a better place. Very cool. Uh, do you have one uh, of these ten? Do you have a one creed that calls out to you? Um, well, there are a lot of them that are are pretty neat. Um, I think the, the there are you could build a very interesting character from the power corrupts creed, especially because this would potentially put the character in conflict with other members of the rebellion, which could be pretty interesting. Because that creed is going to make you ask, you know, like, okay, we have this new weapon, should we use it? You know, like, sure. we, we're we trying to build something new for the galaxy, but what can we build that won't just turn into another empire? Um, so I think mm. that could be really interesting. But I also like characters who are sometimes a bit at odds with, you know, with the groups they're working with, because I think that can be interesting, but that might not be for everyone. Very nice. Very nice. I'm trying to think um, of my favorite man. Like I, I, I like I like the creeds. I'm almost I don't know. There's some here that are just so unusual. I mean, like be unique fascinates me. It's like it's like mm. it's like what's your what's your goal to be a special butterfly when you get down to it <laughs> to make sure everyone is a special butterfly. Um, some people are really in on that, whether explicitly or tacitly. <laughs> <laughs> Personally, I like the balance must be restored. Mm. But that just probably calls to me because I got this whole Jedi mentality going on anyway. Well, since I'm the one always making uh, right turns, um, the chaos one is all about me. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. So, So, okay, so going back to around page 18 or so, mm. there's been a bunch of discussion around the species choices for desperate allies. And I have one in particular that I really, really found awesome that was in there. Um, and, uh, so if, uh, if we can talk about species for a second, yeah. there are three new species in desperate allies, the Kamasi, the Nemoidians. That's, that's the one that I was like, that's awesome. And then the, I don't even know how to say this. Is it the Gosam or the Gossam? I think it's Gossam. I think it's Gossam. Gossam. I don't know. I, I, I always I always pronounce it the Gossam. Gossam. Okay, I've I, I heard it both. I just don't know. But uh, rhymes with anyway. awesome. Gossam rhymes with awesome. Rhymes with yeah, awesome, baby. There you go. That's perfect, right? That's here. a character with... tagline right there. My species is a Gossam. Rhymes with awesome. awesome. Oh, I really like your species name. You like that? You should see my phone number, baby. That's a... <laughs> anyway. Wow. So, okay, so the Kamasi, right? They are dang near extinct, photographic memory, wanderer, pacifists (laughs) of the Rebellion era, right? So I think think more than most species, this one one had to be a shoe-in, right, for Age of Rebellion. But Age of Rebellion is ostensibly about PCs who joined fighting the the Rebellion and, and against the Empire, right? So was it, I guess the question here is, was it difficult to put 
a traditionally pacifistic species into a military focused line of books? No, not at all. Um, I mean, that sort of character conflict is, is great for role playing, right? Um, you know, the the character, the Kamasi character has to ask this question. You know, presumably they've joined the rebellion for some reason, but it, it's a freebie for both the player if they're interested in this and the GM if they're interested in pursuing this of, you know, like, well, the character has this, you know, this pacifist culture they come from. Now, maybe they maybe they defy that, you know, like player characters defying species norms is sort of, you know tradition right but maybe they don't you know maybe they really are a pacifist and so you know then you have this really interesting question of like how do you play a pacifist character what happens when you're put in a situation where debatably you know like pacifist like sitting by is is you know worse than taking violent action you know you have these interesting questions that the character will have to grapple with and the player can enjoy seeing the character grapple with now admittedly you know Again, that's not the sort of thing that's for everyone. But when role playing, I think it can be really interesting to put limitations on your characters. Um, in our office, uh, Force and Destiny playtest game, for instance, I actually played a character who was, um, uh, well, I was going to say it's not quite right to call him a pacifist because he did because uh, what is it? The good book's not so specific about kneecaps, but he didn't kill anyone, and uh, uh, and. So it was interesting to play him because suddenly, you know, like I could not just solve every problem in the traditional role playing way of kill it and take its stuff. So playing this character was really different in a fun way and put like challenges on me like, okay, I have to figure out a clever solution for how I can beat this person without killing them. You know, I have to figure out how we can get out of this encounter without, you know, like dragging it on too long and, and hurting anyone over much, you know, more than they deserve anyway. Um so, you know, I think playing a Kamasi could be a lot of fun uh, in that regard. And especially playing a Kamasi who, you know, like, they have these very vivid memories of the injustices done against them. And yeah. struggling to stay a pacifist, you know, could be a really interesting challenge for a Kamasi. Well, you bring that up, right? And there's a sidebar on on at the bottom of page 19 that is all about this Memni, right? That you can share and you could potentially at the GM's discretion even get a boost die toward convincing the target that, you know, you're being sincere. So, you know, it, it's a big part of Kamasi lore, as you say, and, and, and really, you know, part of what makes what happened to them even more tragic because they remember it so vividly. But it's really, it's really unusual, you know, ability to, to try and codify for a species. So how, how, I'm, I'm curious how you see it playing out for a group. Well, I think it's one of those abilities that you're going to have to um, you're going to have to choose to use. You know, it's not it's not like get a boost die on this kind of check all the time, right? Uh, and those abilities are are fine, and we do lots of them because they're good. But um, you know, this is definitely more of a like if you're interested in pursuing this, you're going to need to give the GM some cues to do it. So one of the things we did is, you know, we put in this little mechanical cue where once per game session you can form a new Memnus and, you know, like then at any time you can recall it perfectly um, and you can share it with another Kamasi or a Force-sensitive character. And it's a very narrative ability, although it's it's not without use because plenty of times I have, uh, you know, forgotten an NPC's name, turned to the GM and said, what was that person's name? And the GM has said, yeah, that sounds like your problem to remember. So, oh. you know... I'm, well, I'm I'm seeing well, Sam saying that to you. I'm just I'm just envisioning Sam saying that to you. It's probably happened. Um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, so having that, you know, like 
come on, Sam, you know, like I used my ability on this is, uh, is useful. But, um, but beyond that, it gives, it gives a mechanical hook that helps you remember this role-playing thing you have. So, you know, like, oh, okay, I've got this, like, sort of, um, say some other good examples are, like, the Trandoshan's regeneration. Like, the regeneration is useful, but, you know, at the end of the day, your character is, in most role-playing games, not going to be so horribly incapacitated that, uh, you know, like, they become unplayable or whatever. Maybe you'll have to live without an arm for a while, but then you'll get a cybernetic eventually or something like that. The nice thing about the Trandoshan is just, you know, like, you don't even worry about that, and it's one of these things that reminds you that your character's unique. And so, you know, like, when you're in a situation, maybe you're like, oh, I cut my own arm off, you know, or something like that. I don't think Cranadak ever did that, but he might have. <laughs> um, he definitely lost his arm twice. I think it was the same arm, too, and it just kept growing back. Um... But, uh, you know, so little little role-playing abilities like that can actually be really neat for getting into the character and helping you, giving you a little mechanical reminder, like, oh, this is why this character is a little different. Interesting. I, you know, the other thing about the, uh, the other thing about the, uh, uh, the, the, the Kamasi that I was curious to see how it would be represented is at least when we get into the lore, like the Legends lore, Kamasi have, uh, and it's kind of hinted at with the Memni thing, they have this strong history of, like, pseudo-innate force use that the Memni gives, they have, is, that is manifested in the Memni, right? And Kamasi have a history of being Jedi. Like, a lot of them were Jedi. And so I was like, okay, how is that going to play out? And then I look at the stats, and I'm like, oh, okay, well, I can do a free rank and discipline if I want. Okay, oh, and willpower of three. Oh, okay. So that was, like, from a design perspective, it was almost this subtle little, like, you know, hey, you can be a really good force user starting if you want to be better than average basically oh kamasi would be a great jedi especially because yeah. their strain threshold is uh yeah 11 plus willpower of three i mean they're they're not the highest strain threshold i don't think in the game but they're pretty close if not um and uh you know it's a uh it's a it's a nice little bonus for those force powers you know you can end up getting some strain from those yeah yeah, I tell you, when I was uh, when I was playtesting this, I really wanted to make a uh, a Kamasi name him uh, Kwai Chang Kane. He's even got his own flashbacks built in. <laughs> <laughs> Wandering around the outer rim. What are you doing, Kwai Chang? What are you doing? I'm taking an hour and describing my flashback. Shut up! Keep gaming. <laughs> Fine. Weirdo. Just record them beforehand. Start playing them. <laughs> Session. Oh God! Here's another one. <laughs> okay, speaking of weirdos, um, I I want to. Can we talk about the Nemoidians? Sure, let's talk about Nemoidians. Like a lot of folks were really. Su- I mean, you read on you you get on the forums, man. A lot of folks were really surprised by this entry in the book. And the yeah, book, me, me, me. Like, I was like you. Okay. I mean, the book takes pains to tell the reader that Nemoidians are still almost universally reviled by like everybody and that they have a hard time finding trust even in the rebellion um so i want to talk from you i mean first we actually have a listener question about uh sort of about nemoidians but before that i want to get your advice on on for players that are going to be choosing such a species and i mean and how i mean how do you how do you see the galactic prejudice against nemoidians fitting into a group's play with apc nemoidian in the party i mean Hmm, definitely. Well, I think that it would end up depending a lot on the group. Um, so, you know, having a character who has to deal with prejudice in the game can be a pretty interesting story element. I mean, 
I've played the same, you know, like outcast half work in D and D that I'm sure everyone else has played at some point. <laughs> um, and that can be a pretty interesting character. And, you know, the Nemoidian can give you some of that. Maybe your allies don't trust you as much. Um, you know, so that's, that's, that's one way to go, but you could also handle it as a purely internal issue. You know, even if, you know, the, the rebellion, you know, people may have their personal opinions, but the rebellion is very much in a beggars can't be choosers scenario. Um, you know, they, they, uh, they also, you know, accept Han Solo and, uh, you know, Han is very charming, but uh, trustworthy in that first movie, eh, you know, he doesn't prove himself until later. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it, there's a, uh, you know, there's a, there's a wide range of people in the rebellion there for any number of reasons. Um, and to some degree, you know, beggars can't be choosers. Um, but you could handle, it could, this could be an entirely internal driver too, because of that. Um, you know, maybe the character, maybe the character is a young idealist who wants to separate themselves from the past, uh, the past or atone for what the past generation did. Maybe the character actually fought in the war and a Moidian veteran could be pretty, pretty interesting. I mean, obviously they didn't do most of the boots on the ground fighting, but the, the war came to Kato and Moidia, you know, there must've been people involved in that conflict. Um, or, you know, I was going to say just an idea that popped into my head. Maybe the character has gotten to started to get a suspicion that the war wasn't what it seemed. You know, like what about a Nemoidian conspiracy theorist who seems to be a crackpot who's always going on about how some evil mastermind set the Trade Federation up? You know, that could be a pretty neat character. There was um, this man. His name was Adarsidius. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you could do some pretty interesting stuff with that. Um, so it's something that, like, the GM and the player could deal with, you know, directly. It could it could be a thing. Um, or it could be, you know, if the player isn't interested in role-playing through, you know, like, becoming trusted by everyone, maybe it's purely an internal thing. And that's the sort of thing GM and a player should definitely talk about before the game. You know, when you're coming up with your Neumoidian character, go to your GM and say, hey, I'm thinking about playing a Neumoidian. You know, like, maybe maybe at the start of the campaign, this person is already trusted for some reason, if that's just, you know, not a thing you want to explore. Um, you know, player characters are all about being exceptions, right? Um, but on the other hand, it could be a really interesting issue to explore. You know, having maybe another party member doesn't trust you because they're a Clone Wars veteran, or maybe, you know, like, uh, maybe, uh, you know... Some NPC a commanding officer doesn't trust you as much or something. I mean, maybe that's why, you know, your Age of Rebellion is always ripe for sort of, you know, dirty dozen type scenarios. Maybe that's uh, why the Nemoidian's in with, you know, everyone else who's sort of a, a weirdo. Um, so, you know, I think there's I think it's a great narrative opportunity to explore. This is good advice. Hey, I want to play a Nemoidian. Why? <laughs> because Gungans aren't in the game yet? Gungans. <laughs> Um, well, no, th this is this is good advice. I love the conspiracy theorist idea. That's just absolutely brilliant. Um, so, in a related question, uh, which also will apply to the Gossam when we talk about them in a moment, um, sure. Ender Ender Melchior was curious. He says, and I think you may have already dealt, answered this uh, with your previous answer, but he says the new presented species lean heavily towards those that were deeply involved with the leadership of the Confederacy of Independent Systems. And what was the reasoning to go with that thematically? Um, in dealing with diplomats of the Rebel Alliance? Um, well, uh, I mean, we ended up with uh, the species we did because we were interested in species that were a, a good fit for uh, politicians. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, because of, especially because of the Clone Wars, uh, 
you know, two of these three species represent a lot of the politicians we've seen. Um, and then the Kamasi were sort of a perfect fit, as mentioned earlier. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, I think all of these species have a really interesting political, ultimately all these species have a really interesting political relationship, you know, with the rest of the galaxy. Um, you know, there's an inter- there's sort of an interesting parallel. The, the Kamasi have suffered at the hands of the empire, obviously their, their home world was pretty much destroyed. And then their new home world of Alderaan got, uh, destroyed again, um, you know, the Nemoidians have been repressed by the Empire now, um, you know, both economically and politically. The Gossam have, we'll discuss it, I'm sure, but they've had their own troubles with the Empire. Um, and so they're all species who have a really complex relationship with, with galactic politics and a strong reason to be directly involved in it. Um, so I think that's that's one, you know, sort of uniting theme amongst them. Um that it helped them fit into this book. Good answer. Good answer. So and each one, one, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Just, Oh, no, go um, on, go on. Yeah. No, just, it's also interesting because each of these species has very much pursued that in their own way. Um, you know, uh, the Kamasi have, you know, sort of stuck by their traditional roots. The Nemoidians have tried to, you know, like change their culture to be accepted. The, uh, the Gossam have, you know, turn to piracy and so there's there's all these interesting different methods of you know like trying to survive in the galaxy that they've they've taken so speaking of the gossam uh they are the third spirit species that was introduced in this book uh reptilian wily and with cool walking stick can thingies uh some have said this is a very odd choice at least nemoidians were a huge part of the prequels um what led to the inclusion of the Gossam? And maybe you answered this already, but, you know, that they are, you know, the political race. We see them in the scene with Count Dooku on uh, Genosis. But aside from that, we really don't see them ever again. Um, what what led to them being included over, say, other races? Um, well, the Gossam, I mean, like, you know, it, one of the things they are most known for is, is not just, uh, their involvement in the, you know, the separatist politics, but they're known for being wily and clever. Um, and that sort of fits perfectly in a book about politicians. That's true. Um, they're also known for piracy though. And that makes them kind of an interesting and different, you know, take from the Nemoidians and the Kamasi, who both prefer to avoid the use of force for various reasons, or prefer not to do it themselves, in the case of the Nemoidians. Um, so, then, uh, as mentioned in the question, as it was posted also, the, the Coruscant Purge definitely played into that as well. Um, that you know, Nice nod to the Coruscant Knights series of books, by the way. Our writers, you know, draw from a, a wide range of... Uh, wide range of resources and find some really interesting stuff. And, you know, we throw it at the wall and see what sticks. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, so that gives them a strong reason to hate the empire. And unlike the, you know, the Kamasi and the Nemoidians, they are more likely to, you know, act directly. They have this history of piracy. They have, you know, they're, they're known for sometimes being fighters, despite the fact that they are so small. Um, so, you know, they're, they're an interesting, uh, they're an interesting one. They're also, um, you know, they're very different physically from the other two, which is something we do look at. Um, the picture didn't quite 
get this across because we need to, to show them at all sizes, but Kamasi are really tall. Like, they are gigantic yeah. lemur folk. And um, Gossam are really short. Uh, <laughs> they are tiny little things. And Nemoidians are more human-sized. Um, so, you know, we try to have a, a wide visual range as well because the, you know, the visual, the wonderful Star Wars alien designs are a huge part of the reason it's so compelling to play a lot of these characters in addition to all the interesting things about the species. And so, you know, the Gossam were a really different one. I think the one thing that calls to me as far as like looking at the Gossam and the Nemoidians being part of this is really drawing upon – I'm kind of getting this idea of Asian Americans and maybe that's just because the accent that the Nemoidians had. But Asian Americans during World War II and even into the 50s and the prejudices that they were subjected to uh, as, as sort of a drawing point of inspiration for some of the trials that these types of characters could face both from the Empire and from the Rebellion as well. Hmm. Yeah, there could be some interesting parallels there. I hadn't thought about that explicitly, but uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Good, good. Historical draw. Yeah. So, lastly, Max, do you have a favorite species in the book, and why? Well, I, I do really like the Kamasi. I like the idea of playing a six-foot-tall lemur pacifist um, uh, with uh, a good reason to be a pacifist, but also a bunch of good reasons to hate the Empire. I think the character conflict, you know, intrinsic in such a character would be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, with that said, I'm kind of liking this Nemoidian conspiracy theorist idea, so... <laughs> <laughs> as soon as you said that, I was like, oh my god, that is awesome! <laughs> can, you imagine his, can you imagine his bunk on the party ship? You know, with like, like you know, flims of plastic pictures, you know, pasted up on the wall with red string drawn between them, you know. The crazy board. <laughs> yeah, the crazy board. <laughs> <laughs> the wall of crazy. Oh, what about you two guys? What are yours? What's your favorite from the book? Um, uh, I'm leaning towards Nemoidian, actually. Uh, even before the conspiracy theorist thing, I just, uh, sure. um, I think they're wicked political machination they're, they're so they're so machiavellian i love it <laughs> dave well i mean i don't want to make an anonymous here but i mean i was leaning toward the nemoidians in the first place i just i thought it was really cool to have them in and the kamasi okay awesome gossip that's fine too but the <laughs> nemoidians just make for just awesome storytelling yeah. i'm a sucker for the kamas yeah, I, I I I dig them. I I totally dig their. You, all, you uh, their style. always loved them. I did. I, I totally did, dude. You've always. So it was awesome. It was it was it was heartwarming to see them in this book, Max. Thank you for putting them in here. <laughs> no problem. Okay, um, so I want to move into. Yeah, the, let's move on to specializations. Let's move on to specs, and I think we can each take one. I really want to take the analyst because I love it so. Um, but there were three new specs introduced in this book, the advocate, the analyst, and the propagandist. Um, and I want to start with the advocate because we actually had a lot of questions here. Um, Dave Field, when do you guys want to head off on the advocate? Yeah, I can kind of do the advocate because I kind of, I kind of do my own king making from time to time and (laughs) it's a role that I can get behind. Anyway, um, this is, this is, uh, one of the most unique, uh, um, social characters that uh, that I remember seeing, and and uh, it it you know the funny thing is, and and although I don't necessarily enjoy the archetype, this this makes me uh, this this harkens me back to Game of Thrones and makes me think of Varys. 
you know, the kingmaker, the 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 spider, yeah. whatever you want to yeah. call it, right? It's a spec. These talents mostly focus on making reactions, whether that's turning an enemy's roles against him or making an ally's failure less severe. So, okay, so questions, right? So what led to the design of the advocate and and was it easy to include that it's just so weird unusual yeah well i i think you're hitting upon something good it's not something that tends to get explored a lot and part of the reason is because there often isn't in in a lot of role-playing games um and uh you know a lot of good role-playing games um you know social characters sort of end up as you know like and an archetype and sort of a, you know, like a monotask archetype, or they end up as a like secondary role of something someone else does. You know, the bard, the bard is great at social stuff. The bard also does everything else, but the bard is great at social stuff. Um, you know, like the sorcerer is great at, at social stuff by dint of having a high charisma. Um, uh, so, you know, there's sort of the, the w- two ways these things go or an edge of the empire, you know, like, like the politico is very socially focused and that's the like biggest social focused thing. Then the marshal gets a bit and such, but there isn't a lot of like broad exploration of this. So the advocate is an example of us exploring this a bit more broadly. And one of the things, one of the goals was to create a social support character. Um, the, the thematic, you know, thing going behind this was, well, what about, you know, like, what about the person who isn't the face? Because most people involved in politics, you know, by the numbers, there are way more people helping out behind the scenes than there are people who you see on television, right? Um, so we really wanted the advocate to be one of those people. And we'll get back to that concept as well, because that's also going to play out with the analyst. But, um, so the advocates tree you'll notice is split pretty much down the middle between building allies up and breaking enemies down. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and one twisted of the words I love. I'm glad you do. I like it too. And one of the things we wanted to do with this was make it so that first of all, if you wanted to build a character who was only one of these things, you know, like you wanted to build a character who was, you know, like the confidant, the, you know, the aide, the person who's just always there for someone, always, you know, like able to help them, you know, that's, you take the, you go down the right side of the tree and, you know, you're going to be great at, you're going to be great at spotting people trying to lie to your friend. You're going to be great at, you know, like backing them up when they falter, you know, like with this, you can take a character who has a high presence and not a lot of training in social skills and make them really effective, mm-hmm. um, and by backing them up, um, and uh, then the other side is, is more the uh, more the Varus you were talking about. Um, uh, you know, you, you've got the ability to really make it hard for enemies to do anything in social situations. And one of the things we, we wanted to get at with this book overall is, you know, like social encounters can be interesting and varied and they don't just have to be like, I make a check. OK, I beat the you know, like I be- I beat you in this opposed check. You do what I want. You know, like a, a big social encounter. It could be that if that's what your, your campaign is. But if you wanted to, you could make a big social encounter, like a whole bunch of checks back and forth and, you know, like double dealing in the room, in, in the back room and, you know, like, you know, maybe some other stuff and then back to more checks. And, you know, if you wanted to really get into that political drama, we wanted people to be able to dig into that. And if people aren't interested in that, then, you know, it's a, it's a great, uh, it's it's a great way to, you know, there's lots of great stories to tell in Star Wars, and they don't have to involve this. But we wanted to create the option, and you know, fortunately, it, the way the way our system works, it's pretty easy to make stuff useful both for that, like you know, 
very focused political game and also just useful in general. You know, the advocate is is good to have around anyway because these talents are good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, encouraging words works in any context. So, you know, like you don't need to be you don't need to be making a social check necessarily, you know, like, um, you know, blackmail, which we'll talk about at much greater length, given all the questions about it. Blackmail is going to be pretty useful in a lot of situations. Um, so anyway, sorry, I got a little off topic there, but no, uh, no, not at all. I mean, you, you touched on encouraging words, twisted words. It's funny that they're on the same level of the tree, just on opposite sides because you know, that's a duality there. But you know, you mentioned there's a lot of new talents in the tree, and they seem to focus on that not so subtle influence of the NPC as as an out of turn incidental. And then others are are on the other side of the tree. They're assisting your allies. You know, they fail a check, as you just said. They fail a check incidentally. Oh, by the way, here's a boost for your next one. Do you have a favorite out of this? Um, I really like blackmail. Um, <laughs> down there on the bottom of the tree, yeah. <laughs> blackmail is one of the most it's a very narrative talent um and you're gonna have to work with your gm on it in certain regards you know as to what exactly it means we'll, we'll talk more about blackmail but i think blackmail is an awesome narrative opportunity and it really can help tell a story with mechanics um where you you grind someone down and then you get them to do what you want um and we'll we'll come back to that i'm pretty happy with uh with encouraging words as well, too. Um, and, uh, you know, speaking of the library of social talents, that's what I'm glad to have around. Yeah, it's good. But, Dave, I mean, do you, do you want to dig into blackmail? I mean, because it seems like we have some questions on that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, because that's where we have some confusion and question. Uh, first up from GM Lance. He says, the blackmail talent seems like a difficult talent use. For NPCs, I would imagine it's a rare situation where their strain threshold would be exceeded in a non-combat situation, perhaps a social exchange. What would be a good example of how to use this talent in a game? All right. So for this, I'd like to uh, have everyone flip to page 79 because one of the things that we that I you know definitely wanted to have in this book was the rules discussing ideas for using strain threshold in social encounters. Um because strain threshold works is, is strain the strain threshold is a great mechanic. I have to give Jay a lot of credit for it because it works incredibly well for modeling not only combat stress but also day to day stress or you know like the stress of a negotiation. And so having guidance on how to you know uh, how to work that in is really valuable. So John Dunn, the freelancer who wrote that, did a really nice job on that section. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a lot about that, but definitely you know like. One of the things the the advocate does, but something that can be happening in general, is you know people in an extended negotiation. People should be taking strain, PCs and NPCs. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's also the uh, page with the Wookie uh, doing the table flip. <laughs> yes, it is. In the flying Cheetos. Okay, so uh, Imperial Spy has a question regarding blackmail. While it expressly says the NPC threshold must be reached with a non-combat check, can it be used in a combat encounter? Along with that, does strain inflicted by scathing tirade or other talents like it count as a non-combat check, even if used in a combat encounter? I figure it's not, but I would like official word to confirm. 
Yes, so a combat check is a check using one of the listed combat skills. Um, so that would be, you know, like ranged light, ranged heavy, melee, brawl, saber, etc. Um, so if it is if it is not a check using one of those or some sort of thing where a talent lets you do something with one of those with a different skill, it is not a combat check. Um, so you are good to go on scathing tirading people into doing what into scathing tirade into blackmail. Nice. See, that makes him a happy camper right there. That makes me. Now, there it, is a me. reason scathing tirades not in that tree. <laughs> 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 All right. So I've got one more. Uh, this is from Imperial Spy. He has a um, a different, really cool uh, advocate talent question. And this is regarding the plausible deniability. <laughs> and this one, I love it. There's two of them in there, and plus an improved. So how uninvolved can an NPC be to be affected by this? For example, say I have an advocate in the middle of an audience with a hut, with guards, dancers, and other supplicants and waiting nearby. For now, the advocate is only dealing with the hut, and things have yet to turn hostile. However... The advocate, fearing that the guards could be used against him, should talks turn sour, decides to try and coerce them into departing, taking for granted he has enough ranks, uh, plausible deniability to do so. If he succeeds, does the GM have to make the guards leave peace of, uh, peacefully? Or can the GM say the guards are too involved to be affected? You're talking to their boss, after all leading to a deflection of the coercion to the Twi'lek dancers who suddenly decide they'd rather not be here. So th- this is a tricky question because I'm always a little uncomfortable when when the GM has to do anything. <laughs> um, uh, I, so I, I'm putting you know, scare quotes on has to. Um, I would say that this is, a, this is a case where I would certainly add some setback dice to try to get rid of the guards, but... I would probably, as a GM personally, let the player attempt it. Um, if there's no reason to believe things are going to be violent, maybe they can talk the guards into leaving. On the other hand, I I will say that I think it would not be unreasonable for a GM to say, no, you cannot get rid of the guards, they are not uninvolved. So, I personally, I like to let players roll and just add setback dice and difficulty if they're trying to do something that should be really hard. But uh, I don't think it would be unreasonable for a GM to say no. Well, dude, we said this before. This is the yes and system. It's one of the beautiful things about this system, right? So it's like, yeah, you can do it, but and there's, oh, yeah, two setback dice or and an upgrade. or <laughs> You know what I mean? Right. right. And God help you if you roll a despair because they're going to take your threat the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, I think I think there's a lot of room for things like that and one of the things i love about this system is throwing a bunch of red dice into you throw a bunch of red dice into a pool and the player will immediately go oh, i don't know if i want that <laughs> um sometimes they'll go for it anyway and then the results are great so you know um i would i would i would say in that case it's just going to have to come down to what the gm thinks is going to be best for the story and most fun dude Good, 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 good answer with a yes, good yes and answer. Very nice. Yep. Okay, let's move to the analyst because I'm really excited. Um, so, Max, I, I, I mean, you know, this is the first time you and I have talked, and 
you, one thing you don't know about me as a gamer is that I love support characters. They're the characters I prefer to play, and it doesn't matter whether I'm at the RPG table or I'm playing an MMO RPG. Okay, I like to play support characters. Period. The analyst is like the thinking man's diplomat, and this is possibly no, not possibly. This is my favorite specialization in the entire Age of Rebellion line, hands down. This is possibly my favorite specialization in the game to date, in the entire game. Okay, so I'm really glad you like it. Just freaking kudos, man. I um, I. I <sighs> This does what the scholar like. I like I like the idea of a scholarly character, okay. And we have the scholar that we got in in Edge, but they're really handy in a sort of non-combative sense. The very you know, there's not a lot they can do in combat. Um, and I'm not saying a game needs to be focused on combat, but there's going to be combat. Um, so I mean, are you just sort of you know hunkering down and waiting for your moment? you know, in between those combative scenes or what, if you're a scholar, the, the analyst lets you do what the scholar can't and use your knowledge checks to actually buff your party in the middle of either a, a combative or non-combative encounter for that matter. Um, I mean, and buff them big time. Talk to me about the design of the analyst. What led to it? Why include it? Well, part of the design behind the analyst was that I, um, knowledge specialization is, is a good example of what you're talking about, where it's valuable, and when it's useful, it's awesome. Um, but it doesn't have a but, lot of outlets yeah. that translate directly into um, directly into mechanical benefits. Right. Um, you know, like, that's sort of on the GM. So one of the things that, one of the goals of this is, like, you know, obviously if you generate advantage on a knowledge check or you, you know, generate whatever on a knowledge check, what are you going to do with that? Well, like you can figure out something useful to do with that. But we wanted to really try to give some talents that give you some guidance, you know, give you a, a direction for like, oh, OK, this is a thing I could do with that. Um, so the hope was that uh, that this would do that uh, and, um, you know, get people sort of engaged with some things we already had that, uh, you know, that were, you know, good um but give them some really concrete ways to engage with them um so uh that's definitely what's behind that now um i can't take credit for uh valuable facts um sam designed that and i just plopped it in here oh Um, god it's so good Uh, but valuable facts is definitely one of the things that sort of sets the tone where like here's an awesome thing to do with a knowledge check and then um yeah, it was, you know, the diplomat has all these knowledge skills, but didn't have a really scholarly type thing. And so we thought, well, we should do something with that. But it is Age of Rebellion, so it's, you know, people fighting a war. So, you know, everyone is a combatant in the rebellion to some degree. Right, so right. let's give them some stuff that's, you know, that will be useful on the battlefield. Let's ha- let people build the, you know, like, analyst who gets thrown into the field at the beginning of the action movie and, you know, like does a bunch of cool stuff by, you know, being really smart and helps the action hero, you know, take out the big thing or whatever. Dude, so I, that was that was sort of what we were we were going for with that, you know, like what would what, what happens when you put someone who knows a lot about everything, you know, into this difficult situation. It's like, well, they figure out a way to make that relevant. <laughs> yes. I mean, and the, you we find this elsewhere, but this and to bring that point, you say someone knows something about everything. This is one of the few specializations out there that does, I mean, just in that without having to cross spec gives you access to every single knowledge skill in the game. 
um, at least currently in the game. Um, but like looking at these talents, man, I mean, they, like you said, they, they focus on, you know, yeah, there's, there's talents here to allow you to make knowledge checks better, but again, use them in that more concrete fashion on the battlefield, as you say. I've got my favorites, man, but do you have a favorite ability of the analyst? Uh, yeah, um, I am really happy with, uh, with how thorough assessment came out. Um, thorough assessment, thorough assessment was designed to make you desperately want to be able to buy that fourth rank of knowledge specialization. I've never wanted to get, I mean, no, no, not dedication, not force rating. Nothing has made me want to get to that fifth tier faster than this. It's just, and for those who don't have the book, it's, um, once per session, um, hard knowledge check to gain boost die equal to the number of successes you roll that you can just distribute as you like throughout the encounter. Mm. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so that's, Oh God, that's just amazing, man. That turned out really well. Um, I think that probably ties with me for valuable facts, which blows me away. One, because it's a second tier talent. It only costs 10 XP to get, uh, to, to get it. And that's once per encounter, you make an average knowledge check. And if successful, you can throw a triumph to any one of your allies' skill checks during that encounter. <laughs> Did you know that Stormtrooper armor is, like, really weak between the, uh, you know, the, uh -huh. knee, the knee pads? Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> I'm just like, that is, that, that's, that's, that, 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 that's incredible. Um, the other one I loved was Improved Researcher, which is finally, finally, I, I hate to say this, it makes me. It makes researcher talents multiple ranks in the researcher talent matter. Like for the first time for me, um, where you can gain like uh, automatic advantage per rank of researcher you have um, uh, on checks to act on those facts. So that's what's really intriguing. It's like it's like okay, I I, I, I research something and you know. I make a successful knowledge check to research it really quick, and I can get advantage based off of the success of my knowledge chest, just just the raw success, um, and and the ranks of researcher I have. It's it's just really cool. I love it thematically. I love it. Good. Well, one thing we one one tricky thing about knowledge uh, skills is that sometimes knowledge skills are incredibly valuable. You know, times like you know, especially if you don't know that much about the setting, knowledge skills are incredibly valuable because suddenly you know. You can you can be like okay I don't know you know like I don't know what that species is I don't know what they're allergic to and I'm cooking them a meal so I bet well that'd be you know so I better make a knowledge analogy check to make sure I don't you know cook them something they're allergic to don't ask where this example is coming from I don't have an answer um, <laughs> uh, but uh, you know but if you know a lot about the setting even if you're you know even if you're very dutifully role playing your character's knowledge which some people I play with are better about than others. Um, you know, you're going to have little things where you just sort of like you elide things in your mind because you don't even consider that you wouldn't know that. Um, so one thing I wanted to do with, uh, you know, playing around with especially improved researcher is give you a reason to do that research, even if you maybe know the answer. So like, you know, you're trying to figure out how to deal with, you know, ATATs because they're causing you problems you know, like, you've seen the movies. You know about the wrapping the things around their legs solution. Um, even if you're, you know, saying, like, okay, well, I wouldn't know about that as a thing necessarily. You know, it's going to pop to your head, right? This gives you a reason to be like, all right, well, I should do some research on this. Oh, look, I generated this advantage. That'll be useful when we're actually trying to deal with them. Right. 
Um, so it gives you a reason to role play researching things you already know about. Um, and I mean, it's, it was inspired by valuable facts, you know, spout off some information that everyone may already know, and it still gives you a benefit, you know? So like, you're sort of playing to that scene in the movie where the one person's like, okay, it works like this, you know, and then everyone else is able to act on that. Um, it's an interesting divide between in and out of character knowledge, and it's always a little bit fluid, right? Like, you know, it's hard to it's hard to draw a bright line on that, um, even if you're even if you're trying to. Well, to wrap up the analyst, um, Elias Windrider was curious about the design of the analyst. He had a question. He said, I, I would have thought the analyst would be in the spy career rather than the diplomat. Is the reason um, it's in the diplomat career because of the diplomat's career skill list, which has all the knowledge skills, obviously? Um, or was another reason the primary motivation? Well, um, we actually did discuss it, uh, potentially, um, being in the spy. Um, but the thing about the analyst is that the analyst diplomats are focused on communication. Uh, and the analyst isn't just about knowing things. It's also about communicating them to other people. Um, so, you know, there's this, in addition to having all the, the great knowledge skills already in there, um, you know, this, it's about, the analyst is about presenting things in a way that other people can understand them. Um, you know, you have to take that abstract knowledge you have and turn it into something applicable. You have to take that knowledge you have about the melting point of Durasteel or whatever and tr- translate it into something <laughs> the soldier can actually use to blow a hole in the wall, right? Um, otherwise, you're just spouting off facts that no one has any context for. Um so, uh, so the, the communication focus there is a big part of it. And with that said, the analyst might well have fit perfectly well in the, in the spy. There's a lot of cases where, you know, things work differently, but that's, that's the reason in my mind, besides the career skills, which is one big reason. Gotcha. Well, cool. Anyway, I'm going to create Cliff Clavin, the accidental diplomat. <laughs> it's a little known fact that, uh. <laughs> the melting point of Durst, it's a little known fact that the uh, Stormtrooper armor is weak at the joints of the neck right there. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. Dude, this is my... Anyway, thank you. This was a, just a tremendous spec for me, and I cannot wait to get it on the table. So, thank you. My pleasure. Which actually brings us to one of my, to my favorite uh, from the book. So, great that that worked out that way. Ooh. <laughs> the Propagandist. Um, using press for and against you. I love this idea. Wag the dog, baby. Um, By the way, so I love the what? illustration in this one, too. Oh, yeah. That's so, absolutely great. So it's it's not an EU character, but uh, that that character is based loosely on a character who Dan Clark, one of, our, one of my coworkers, who... Have you had Dan on? We have not. No, not yet. You should definitely have Dan on at some point. He's a great guy. But um, he asked him about a character named Khalid. Um... Uh, because that that illustration is, is loosely based on some of the ideas uh, around Khalid, who was in fact a propagandist before the specialization even existed. Nice, nice, nice. So, so, so Dan Clark led to the design of the propagandist. Then, um, I wouldn't say that. I think it was more a nice <laughs> meeting of uh, of two things working out well. But he certainly got me thinking about some of the talents. Um, you know. That's one of the great things about, you know, having that office game going most of the time is, you know, his, his character didn't have abilities, but I was able to say, okay, what sort of abilities should Khalid have had? Well, you know, like, Khalid was always, like, spending time and energy and effort, like, 
you know, he would mention, Dan would say to me, you know, like, okay, I'm going to write up a new article about what we did. And I'm going to like tweak these facts a little bit. And then I'm going to post it, you know, like here on this world. And then I know it'll get around to this other place. And so I was like, so, you know, I sometimes I'd award them extra duty for that. And so I was like, oh, well, that could be a mechanic. And that's where positive spin came from. It's like, that's the sort of thing he should have had access to. He didn't, but like he was already doing that anyway. So, you know, it's like, that's a perfect example of, you know, like that inspiring the design. Yeah, because this is the first time that we've seen any sort of talent that affects uh, affects duty or even even obligation. Even uh, there is a talent that affects obligation in the entrepreneur, I believe. Oh, I missed that one. Um, yes, master merchant. Um, ah. you can pay in addition to a number of other effects. Uh, so it it reads uh, when buying or selling goods or paying off or taking obligation may suffer two strain to sell for twenty five percent more buy for 25% less, pay off one more obligation, or take one less. So we have had things that have interacted with duty and obligation before, but they are not common. Mm, makes sense. Uh, I, I just really love the whole talent spread here. You get a lot of talents in here that deal with intelligence gathering and even a little bit of counterintelligence. Um, just a whole lot of fun. Uh, Zertz chimed in with a comment that was worth sharing. Not really a question. Uh, amazing work on the analyst and propagandist. As a propaganda analyst, I must say I am impressed and happy to see the love. Great to see the term propagandist embraced as a neutral descriptor, as per the denotation of the word. Denotation of the word, I'm sorry. Um, but Max, of all of these talents that, that <laughs> came from Dan Clark's character, uh, <laughs> do you have any favorite abilities for the propagandist? Well, I would definitely have to say I think I think my favorite uh, is uh, bad press, um, yes. which is some again something Khalid never actually did, but the sort of thing I you know when thinking about this was like what's the sort of thing he might have wanted to be able to do, and you know he was always trying to you know like write these pieces that would get get people you know turned to the side of the rebellion, and so I was able to say okay, well what about something that gets people turned to the side of the rebellion and really hits the empire in the gut. Um, <laughs> So, you know, that's where that's where that came from. Um, Are you kidding me? I, I just read this for the first I, I must have glossed over it before. <laughs> yeah. And for, okay, for those who don't have the book to summarize once per session, pick an organization. And yes, that's very loose and very just pick an organization and then make a hard deception check. And if you're successful, organization members have their wound thresholds reduced by one plus one for every three successes you rolled until the end of the session. <laughs> the session. Now, I, I will. I will point out that in the in the full version of the talent, it does mention that the empire is too broad an organization to to smear with this. You yes, need to yes. go after like the Imperial Navy or something like that, right, or right. like Bla like the Black Legion. Sun, if you're having to deal with that. Yeah, or the Five Hundred First Legion. I love that. Right. Yeah. I heard the Five Hundred First Legion gun down kids. <laughs> the the, uh, the other the other thing was it a Tuesday? <laughs> the the other talent combination I'm really happy with in this tree. Um, sometimes we get to tell little stories with, uh, with talents, and it's cutting question into toughened as its own little thing that goes nowhere. Oh yeah, um, because uh, you know the idea being uh, you're uh, you're an interviewer, and maybe sometimes you get punched. <laughs> you asked. You roll too many threat or despair. <laughs> you asked a cutting question. Oh, very nice. Um, so 
because of the varied talents and specifically the one that affects duty, some folks have asked the obviously ob- the obvious question, um, spoken quite well by GM Hooley, in the Age of Rebellion releases thus far, the talents from the different careers are such that they are able to be used in any of the three game lines. In Desperate Allies, the propagandist uses the positive spin and improved positive spin talents, which require that the use of the duty mechanic specific to Age of Rebellion. What were the decisions made to integrate a core mechanic for a specific book within a, speci- within a specialization? Are there some suggestions for including this in an Edge of the Empire or Force and Destiny game? Um... So, uh, I mean, one of the things there is, it, it is a game mechanic in this game, and although all of the uh, games are compatible, we do want to interface with those mechanics. I mean, in the past, we, we have played around with talents that mess with obligation before, um, and, you know, who knows what we will do in the future. Um, I certainly don't, but we've talked about it, um, and, you know, so it's, it's on the table as something we might do more of. Uh, with that said, you will notice that the position of the, and I believe the question even mentioned this, but the position of the positive spins is such that you can buy around them fairly easily. Um, Mm -hmm. um, If you're playing this character in Edge of the Empire and you do not have a duty um, because you you and your GM have decided, you know, you're not going to have an individual duty or anything like that, um, you can avoid buying them pretty easily. Uh, And um, it shouldn't, I was going to say, it shouldn't slow down your progression too much to do so. Um, So, you know, it's... uh, I think in, for talents like that, as with Master Merchant, which is similarly in kind of an offshoot, you know, oftentimes we'll try to place them so that, you know, on the off chance you're playing in a game that doesn't at all involve that mechanic, it still functions, it's still a good talent tree. Um, you know, I rarely, when I'm playing a character, I rarely buy every talent in a tree anyway. Uh, but uh, it's the sort of thing we want to be able to explore because it can have such a cool impact in an Age of Rebellion game and, you know, be so useful there. And it doesn't hamper the tree over much in any other context. Mm. That's mighty considerate of you. <laughs> uh, lastly, Away Put Your Weapon wants to know, Max, if you were to create a character, say an advanced knight level type of character with 150 bonus XP, and he used one specialization from Desperate Allies and one specialization from elsewhere, what two specializations would you use? either for maximum effectiveness or role-playing flavor, or possibly both. Basically, I'm interested to know if he's got a favorite spec in the book and how he would flesh out such a character. Your opinion to make this question... It's your option to make this question fluffy or crunchy. Hmm. Well, I'll probably do a little both in that regard. Um, uh, I think a lot of fun could be had with an advocate... Um, who was in anything that had scathing tirade and improved scathing tirade um, and supreme scathing tirade. Uh, The character who uh, yells at people until they do what you want could be pretty darned entertaining. Uh, The other, um, the other uh, advocate that could get really interesting would be the force sensitive advocate uh, messing around with the ways that the uh, certain force powers can probably help you, um, uh, help you do various useful things. Um, now, in some cases, in some cases, those things are would be combat checks. You know, to mm. discuss, uh, you know, heal and harm, which was shown in the preview. You wouldn't just be able to, you know, like harm someone. 
um, because you're making it calls out you're making a combat check. But um, in some cases, you know, influence is a little more, you know, blurry, blurry. Um, <laughs> and uh, even just having the ability to influence them would be incredibly useful for that, you know, special that uh, specialization. So God. you could have a lot of fun there. I mean, you know, Darth Sidious has assuredly amongst his 10 talent trees, probably somewhere in there is an advocate with a bunch of ranks of plausible deniability. <laughs> Good. Good. Well, he, yeah. I mean, I expect he has every tree that has plausible deniability in it. <laughs> <laughs> Given the lies he pulls off. Dude's got nine ranks of plausible deniability. How the hell did that happen? Well, he needed to be able to remove the nine setback dice from lying to like twenty-five Jedi at once. Seriously, <laughs> yeah. Any of these specs with the influence power is just just frosting on a cake, man. God, I think you could also have a lot of fun with an analyst with uh, an analyst with some sort of combat spec where. Mm. Uh, Step one, you figure out exactly where something's weakness is, and then, you know, step two, you exploit the hell out of it. <laughs> Apply judicious force. Yeah, no, analyst sniper, totally. Oh! Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I want to I wanna touch um, very quickly, because I know we're, we're, this is a phenomenal discussion, I'm loving this, but we're, we're, we're running long, so... Um, yeah, Let's get into signature abilities, because as expected, Desperate Allies gives us two new signature abilities for the Diplomat, and kind of touched on them earlier, Max, but obviously we have uh, Diplomatic Solution, um, which I know was your, was Unmatched Insight was your favorite, we have Diplomatic Solution, which is turning a fight into an argument, (laughs) mostly. (laughs) Um, So talk to us very briefly about the ideation and development of that signature ability. Well, definitely. Um, so, I mean, this is something parties sometimes do anyway, but one of the nice things about diplomatic solution is that by mechanizing it, we can help, you know, provide some guidelines for something that might be a little tricky to figure out on the fly. So suddenly, you know, it's not it's not quite a case of like, oh, you need to figure figure out X, Y, and Z, and, you know, then make this check. It's like, look, here's a check, and then, you know, circumstances will dictate boost and setback. Um it's also nice because when you get it uh, upgraded, you can potentially do it after the shots start flying instead of just before. Um, so, uh, diplomatic solution: um, the the scene where somebody interrupts a fight and you know is able to talk it out is an important one in in media uh, in general, and uh, it does show up in Star Wars. You know, the the heroes don't fight their way out of every situation. Sometimes they talk their way out of it, and sometimes they talk their way out of it even after it looked like it was going to turn ugly. I mean, we got to use some art from this, but uh, they almost got eaten by those Ewoks. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's a thing that happens at various points in the Star Wars franchise, and um, it, it's, it's a really powerful ability, and it's actually... A potent enough ability narratively that I don't know if people saw this, but we included a whole sidebar on when it is appropriate to use it and when it is not. Um, <laughs> so the sharing the spotlight sidebar, you know, like a diplomat, just because a diplomat can use this ability does not mean they should do so in every circumstance. If you're facing off with like the ace's rival pilot and they're having their battle, maybe not the time. Like let the ace have their moment. Um, but uh, uh but, uh, you know, at other times, um, you know, the party 
there might not be a good reason to kill, you know, like this bunch of bounty hunters sent after you. Like, you know, you shouldn't do this in every encounter because some people want to fight, but for some groups, talking your way out of every encounter is actually something they want to do. And for those that aren't, you know, it's, it's a case where you have to, you know, sort of, you know, you, you have to be judicious in its use. Um, one of the things about it, though, that uh, we really wanted to encourage is reminding people that, you know, like, crazy things can happen and, you know, like, you can have these really interesting situations where, you know, you, you run into this, this you know, dangerous-looking group of bounty hunters and, you know, like, it looks like a fight's going to break out. And then all of a sudden, you know, someone steps up and, you know, is able to find some common ground and you're able to talk it out. And that's, that's kind of diplomacy in a nutshell, right? Uh, it's, you know, finding an alternative to force. Um, so we wanted to, we wanted to play around with that. Um, and the other, yeah, anyway, sorry, go ahead. Well, no, that's, that's, that's huge. Um, so I, and I think you've already addressed kind of the next, at least the first part of this question. We had, we had questions come in uh, from both Mr. Dodger and GM Hooley, who kind of chimed in with the same question saying, look, like in Edge of the Empire, we saw the signature ability of last one standing, right? Uh, which you know, in the in Dangerous Covenants, which really changes the overall strength of combat dramatically, but the ability still keeps the combat a combat encounter. By contrast, the Diplomatic solution signature ability here is such that it completely changes the narrative of combat from guns blazing to a more tongue-wagging approach. And the first question they had was, how do you see this working within a heavy combat campaign or scene? And I think you've just clarified that brilliantly. Um... Second question was, do, do you have any examples of how this ability was used in any of the playtests or your own work? The only example they could think of was, like, in Clone Wars when Obi-Wan was cornered and suddenly called for a parlay with uh, Separatist General Worm Loathsome uh, during that, that last stages of the Battle of Christophsis uh, from the Clone Wars movie, basically, when it, when it, came, when it came out. Hmm. Yeah, well, I think um, I was going to say the, uh, the, the case of the, uh, the you know... C-3PO using this on the Ewoks is That's one. That's a great one. Is one good one. Um, uh, I mean, it, I would not necessarily say these were instances of a use of the signature ability, but they were attempted uses of the tactic. I mean, Luke tries to talk Jawa into or uh, Jabba into uh, giving up Han peacefully. Um, he fails, but you know he tries. Um, yeah. Leia tries to yell Darth Vader off of her ship. It doesn't work because he's Darth Vader, but she makes an effort. So, you know, like, a lot of times, you know, the heroes don't go to violence as a first option. And uh, so, you know, we wanted we wanted to be able to have a, a mechanic to reflect that. Interesting. The Leia example is a very good one, actually. It's like, if she'd had the signature ability, maybe she could have succeeded. Um, it, it, very interesting. Interesting. So... Um, I mean, from a certain point of view, she kind of succeeded. She just failed in the subsequent social encounter. From a certain point of view? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is where you're supposed to jump in and say, Chris, you realize that many of the truths we cling to in life all depend on your point of view. Um, <laughs> well, okay, let's talk about your, one of, you said one of your favorite things in the book, which was unmatched insight, which is reading people really well, really, 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 really well. I really want you to guide us into this and talk about the ideation for this because this seems quite quite unusual. How do you see this being of mechanical benefit? I mean, is it designed for strictly for social encounters or can it be used in combat? And if so, in what ways? So, 
it's certainly not designed strictly for social encounters. I think this can be used in combat, and in fact, I would absolutely do so if I was playing the discussed, uh, the previously discussed combat analyst. Um, so, you know, it, uh, it's a pretty narrative power. Um, both of the powers in this book are. We usually have one more narrative power, one more mechanical power. This one is definitely slightly more mechanical, but they are both pretty narrative because that's sort of the nature of this book. Um, but uh, knowing these things about people in a combat encounter could be incredibly valuable. Um, you know, being able to look over, you know, let's say your party has been jumped by a bunch of people who you don't know. Being able to look over them and figure out their motives, um, you know, like something they don't want you to know. And, uh, you know, like a, something you can use to um, use social checks against them. And, you know, especially if you're that, you know, the yelling, the uh, the uh, scathing tirade character, that's amazingly useful. But even if you're not, you know, like knowing why they're there, knowing, you know, like th- that's huge. Um, and so, you know, being able to figure out that sort of thing has has ramifications, not only in the encounter where like maybe you can figure out that this band of mercenaries is it used to fighting on this sort of world because the dust is there on the boots on their boots is the wrong color. So, you know, they, you know, like you can figure out that, Oh, they're not going to be used to, you know, like the, you know, particulars of some environment and you can use that against them. Um, but you might also, you know, within the scope of a campaign, be able to figure out who hired them and who, who's coming after you. And like, you know, that is also a very useful piece of information and maybe it doesn't help you in the moment, but then later you're like, okay, we know this person has betrayed us and we have to deal with them. So it's, it's a, it's, it's huge for opening up, um, narrative opportunities. Now in a social encounter, obviously it's very directly applicable. Um, because, you know, a lot of the social encounters you're looking at, especially with the rebellion as the fractious organization it is, you're probably going to be dealing with other members of the rebellion and maybe other members of the rebellion who are in contention with you or each other. Um, so being able to walk into a room and know who wants who dead and why is going to be really useful for getting them to either cooperate or get out of your way or whatever you need need of them. Um, but I think, it's, I think it's useful in a lot of contexts. Um, I would... I would use it all the time. Honestly, the only thing that would the only thing that would stop me from using it in a given encounter is if I didn't want to uh, wear the GM out too much. Um, but uh, we tried to keep the the information that the GM has to you know figure out and then dispense um, pretty simple and limited to a limited to a relatively small number of people. Um, one of the things from testing was that came out of testing was bringing the making sure that the number was specifically capped and relatively low because it just created too much of an, like an information overflow that wasn't relevant. Um, so, you know, th- I think that resolves that issue. Gotcha. Well, I, uh, I, I think it's an interesting signature ability. I, it's one of those things, especially when you start getting into some of the, the purchasable upgrades for it, getting into like leverage and secret. I mean, from a narrative standpoint, I mean, leverage obviously has, concrete mechanical implications but secret i mean that could end that could that could do this that could do the exact same thing that dip that diplomatic solution could if you find out a secret of somebody particular that could end combat in its tracks it could end everything in its tracks you know what i mean Mm, potentially i mean on the other hand the gm does have control over what that secret is so you know maybe you just figure out that we quay pirate is having an affair or something and you know 
Eight. That may or may not end combat, or maybe it just gets half the weak way to attack the other half. That's, you know? See, that's that's it. There you go. That's what I'm saying. Or, or I was going to say, or maybe it just gets one of them to run over and start beating up another. So, you know, it's not necessarily... <laughs> um, it's the, the exact utility is very much in the hands of the GM. Um, now, admittedly, that is extra work for the GM to do. But again, we tried to, you know, keep it... Uh, keep it small there's only one secret upgrade on there so you're not right right you know you're not you're not ending up having to figure out five people's you know like dirty laundry when you use this very cool um we had a last question from lance but i think we've answered at this point he was talking about how both uh signature abilities are very unique and they seem like they could be very powerful he wanted to know how these abilities play out during development and how they would you would envision them being used in games but i think we've we've gone over that quite a good bit yeah so at this point let's transition over into new chapters and get into some equipment and gear questions and ships and uh maybe uh maybe take a stop into wado's black market let me take that back huh you'll find what you need All right, well, welcome to Wado's Black Market, uh, which, honestly, I just look for any excuse to drop that bed. Um, any excuse. <laughs> any excuse, because it makes me smile. Um, but uh, normally, we uh, devote a regular segment to talking about cool pieces of gear from across the galaxy, uh, equipment and weapons and armor and all kinds of crazy stuff like that you can find on the black market. But we're going to talk about several things in Wado's as we transition into equipment and gear questions for Desperate Allies. So... There are a ton of new gear options in this book, and it's really, it's kind of unusual in that respect. I haven't seen, I mean, outside of maybe like Dangerous Covenants, I mean, there's 12 new armor and clothing options here, 12 new unique weapons, 20 new pieces of equipment, and seven new, understandably, uh, there, protocol droids. Um, dude, why the plethora of gear options, I mean, compared to the other source books? Well, part of the reason for it is, be, for the same reason there are a lot of new talents in this book. We don't. We didn't have any, and this especially applies to uh, to the clothes. We didn't really have much in the way of clothing that uh, mattered for encounters that weren't where you weren't trying to put a blaster bolt into somebody else before they put a blaster bolt into you. Um, you know, we we didn't have the you know the social gear, and there wasn't really you know a better place to explore it than here. I mean, this is this is the place for fancy clothing. You know, Star Wars. Star Wars is all about the fancy space dresses, right? Like, you know, those keep coming up and showing up in all sorts of places. So we, we wanted to explore that in this. Make, that makes sense. But it, it's it's nice to see this much. Because I think that was a hole that was missing, was that sort of noblesque kind of gear and clothing. You know what I mean? Mm, definitely. Yeah. And but, speaking of the gear. Oh, yeah. We, as we look at new gear, uh, Zertz has a question. Um the gear section adds uh, quite a few items from which automatic advantage is gained, as opposed to bonus boost dice. 
I get that this represents the fact thing that things like diplomatic authorization have no impact on success versus failure, but rather extends to additional privileges. However, I'm curious if there's any concern about the number of automatic advantages available by combining items and supporting talents from other players, creating issues with an overload of advantage on skill checks. Um, well, it is certainly something we keep an eye on. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is how many things you can meaningfully benefit from on a check, uh, which sometimes is hard codified. You can only ever benefit from one piece of armor, for instance, which is why even though with something, we'll come back to the second skin armor, I'm sure, but, uh, you know, even, you know, even if you're wearing that and something else, you're, the question of whether you really can is, is an interesting one. But in other cases, you probably can combine some things. Um, but you have to have the encumbrance to have all of them. And in some cases, you might not really be able to use both at the same time. You know, it might be, it would be hard to use two manuals at once unless you're, you're a Besselisk or something like that, you know, or a, uh, or a Zexto, you know. Um, it would be, it would be hard to, you know, like, it would be hard to work with, like, multiple, you know, multiple computer consoles at once or something like that. So in, in, in some cases, um, you know, that stacking is only going to go up to a point. It, well, in all cases, that stacking should only ever go up to a point of reasonability. You sure. can't, you can't just cover yourself in stuff and then, you know, hope that, hope that'll solve your problems because you won't have a free hand to do anything. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, it, it, there's a lot of, there's a lot of circumstance that plays into that. Uh, in terms of the stacking of automatic advantage, I mean, one of the nice things is it doesn't play into success. Even if you have a ton of automatic advantage, you can still fail. Um, you know, and uh, we do keep an eye on it. You know, we're, we're trying to make sure that you can't stack an absurd amount of anything, period. Um, there's a fair amount of ways to get automatic advantage in this book, but a lot of them are very narrow. So, um, you know, it's in the same way we keep an eye on stacking tons of things that give you boost dice. We try to make sure that you can't just stack tons of things that give you automatic advantage. So it's, it's something we're watching. So I think the, the the one telling comment you made was like, doesn't matter how much, or you can get a boatload of advantage, you can still fail. Yeah, I mean, we wouldn't want you to guarantee that you could fail without threat. That would make things a lot less interesting. But oh, yeah, you know, sure. one of the one of the other things about this too is, you know, even if you have all of the automatic advantage things from this book and you somehow manage to make them all relevant on one check, which I would question any GM who let that happen. Um, you still have to have all those things with you and like be able to get at them to make effective use of them. Um, you know, like, and so, you know, that's, that's great if you're in a library and you have all your books and your various other stuff, but that's not so useful if you're like running around and you're trying to like flip to the right page of the, you know, language guide to find out how to politely, you know, tell the thing chasing you that, you know, you don't want to be eaten. <laughs> Oh, sorry, Phil, I stepped on you there. No, it's okay. It's all right. Don't worry about it. Um, so we also had some questions about specific pieces of equipment. Uh, Definitely. G- GM Lance asks, on page 49, the description of the powered... Co- uh, how do you even say that? Capacitive. 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 Duh. Sorry. Uh, powered capacitive armor. It says you gain one soak and one defense. Is this in addition to the plus to the one soak and one defense value listed on the in the table on page uh, forty eight, 
Or does the armor have zero soak and zero defense until it's powered? Yes, so you'll notice it has gains plus one soak and plus one defense. So it increases your soak and defense by one. So while it's active, uh, you have two soak and two defense uh, at the expense of being able to move around at all well. All right. Dude, that's badass. There you go. <laughs> what? That's some serious armor. You what? do have to uh you do have to downgrade your action or spend strain to use the maneuver to turn it off. I will point out. <laughs> Good call. True, true that. Uh Elias Windrider has a f- uh, question. He wants to know about the second skin armor. Uh, the second skim armor description says it imposes two setback dice on the perception check to notice that the character is wearing armor, but it doesn't specify the difficulty of that perception check. Is it supposed to be an opposed check, opposed by stealth or deception or skullduggery, or should it be a flat two purple check, like armored clothing, an average check? Um, I think it is going to be very circumstantial. Uh, so the second skin armor, we match the syntax with other, um, you know, items we've done that make it check more difficult in this book. So, for instance, the, you know, sword cane adds a setback die to perception checks to figure out, uh, you know, if, that it's an actually, it's actually a lethal weapon. Um, so the, the check might be opposed in certain contexts. It might just be a flat check sometimes. Um, I, I think it's, it's going to depend a lot on the situation. Um. Starting with the average check from armored clothing is not a, a bad starting point, but uh, you could also, you know, I think it would, it'll, it'll depend on the circumstances. How far away is the person, you know, like how closely are they looking, you know, things like that, you know, and then if your character knows they're looking and is making an effort to hide it, maybe that should be opposed by skullduggery. So it's, uh, it's going to be circumstantial, but, uh, or opposed by stealth or something like that, but you know, sure. yeah, it'll depend. Now, he goes on to further, uh, Elias Windrider goes on to to expand on this further. Uh, to me, it looks like second skin armor was intended to pair with banal apparel and or a few other clothing options. Banal apparel is supposed to upgrade the difficulty of identifying the character once by encouraging a wandering eye to keep wandering. But if wandering eye doesn't rest on the character, does that make it harder to notice the second skin armor underneath the banal apparel? That makes so, the narrative sense to me, but raw, it seems like they don't interact, and honestly, it would probably be a little too good if they did. Okay, so raw gets a little weird, because nowhere raw do we actually discuss what happens when you're wearing two sets of armor. Sure. Which may mean that it is a game state that can't occur. That might be a better question for Sam than myself, but I would personally be inclined to say that you might be able to wear banal apparel over your second skin armor from a practical standpoint, but you would really never benefit from... You would never benefit from both at the same time. In the same way that you could never... You would you would take the better soak. You would not um, benefit from, like, the combined soak. I mean, it's irrelevant in that case, but, you know, you'd never benefit from the combined soak of two pieces of armor... You'd choose which one you're benefiting from. When would that happen? That would probably have to be at the GM's discretion, because you're going a little bit outside of the realm of the rules, of what the rules actually cover here. Um, So I would probably allow a character to put banal apparel over second skin armor, but I would probably not have their effects apply to one another in any sort of way. The difficulty of the check to notice the... Uh, the second skin armor would be unaffected by the banal apparel. Um, there you go. 
But the banal apparel might mean that they're not they're not noticed, which means they're not scrutinized. Um, but that is the GM taking in their life in their hands by letting someone wear two pieces of armor at once in the first place. <laughs> Seems legit. Um, so, Elias has one final question about banal clothing. Can you comment on how the indistinguishable talent combines with banal clothing? Is it as straightforward as adding a number of difficulty upgrades to identifying the target, or is this a situation where similar effects from different sources don't stack? Um, my inclination, uh, my answer to this question would be that they do stack. It functions essentially as another rank of the indistinguishable talent. Um, sure. I, however, am not necessarily willing to say that Sam would agree with me, I, I, because I just don't know, and I uh, forgot to ask him before he... Um, took off. Uh, so it is possible that that opinion will be overruled, but my opinion is that it, uh, it would stack. It makes sense. <clears throat> cool. Lastly, Max, do you have a favorite piece of gear from this book? Um, yes, I do. I, quite like the holographic costume. This was the yeah. uh, the writer's idea. Um, I think it was uh, Blake Bennett who wrote this section. Uh, and um, this is a wonderful idea because it is just such a such a like toolbox of dumb ideas in the making. Like <laughs> this is going to be the fuel of so many stupid plans and those are my favorite kind of plans in role-playing games. Um <laughs> So, yeah, there's there's a lot of potential there, especially given how, like, inconsistent and limited the holograms are. That's fantastic. Phil, do you have a favorite one? Um, M3PO. Oh, Hands down. The military yeah. protocol droid. I'm, I'm torn between, okay, the Insider's Guide, mostly because it smacks of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy for me, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, that's just awesome. But honestly, I think honestly now that I think about it, I think my absolute favorite new piece of like gear in this is the staff of office. <laughs> like I just I just want to make I, I want to make like a melee specialist diplomat. <laughs> yeah, you do. You know, maybe cross spec into Marauder, maybe. And it's like, what's your weapon? My staff of office, and I get two boost die. Tell you to convince you to allow me to retain my staff of office. <laughs> well, you know, you wouldn't deny an old man his walking stick, right? No, no, no. Of course not. See that? See that's a, that's a more subtle way to wonderfully go about doing it. But um, and then you beat them to death with. And it. then you beat them to death with. That's the best part. Is this <laughs> is my staff of office. Hey, wait, wait, wait. Hold on, hold on, hold on. What is this? The first time we've seen a that bludgeoning weapon with enough hard points to put on one of those, I can't even remember what it was. There was some attachment that was introduced in Wait, Edge of the Weighted Empire. head. Weighted head. Is this like one of the first melee weapons that could actually use that? I think it might be because it's got two hard points. <laughs> well, let's, let's check. Let's check. Let's see. I've got Edge of the Empire open right now. Oh, my Weighted God. Weighted head is on page... No, wait. There we go. Weighted head is on page 193, and it requires two hard points for plus one damage. And it has two mods of 
one damage one plus one mod and one weapon quality concussive mod. Oh my god. Wow, you could actually make that thing pretty mean. This is my staff of office. <laughs> <laughs> Your staff of awesome. <laughs> this is my staff of awesome. Dude, oh. that's just brilliant. Dave, do you have a favorite uh, piece of equipment or droid or anything in this? Well, of course, it's the integrated public address system. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It, that's not really it. It's um, it's actually something a little bit more subtle. The Poisoner's Ring, I think, is freaking oh, awesome. Oh, yeah, that's badass. Classic. And although, I, I though, although I did like the fact that you gave us flashbang grenades. Mm. Oh, yeah, the grenade that, that uh, destroys... Um, uh, data on a computer system. Oh. oh, there's that one too. I was talking about the Merson N4 noise grenade. Yeah, the noise grenade's pimp, but yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, wicked stuff, wicked stuff. Okay, moving on to this kind of into the next you know gear and equipment segment. We get into the starships and vehicles. There's a lot of new options here. I don't want to spend too much time on them, um, but there's some beautiful, beautiful luxury ships here. But um, I do want to talk about some of the most intriguing things in this chapter for me are the new starship modifications um, that are found in Desperate Allies. There's some really cool ones. But I want to talk to you, um, because this was my question, I want to talk about the Holonet Pirate Array. We know it's restricted. It's got a rarity of eight. (laughs) And it costs 25 Gs. So even if you can find it, and even if you could afford it, this has the potential to be game-changing. Two questions. One, how do you see this being used in a campaign? And two, despite its ship modification status, could you see it reasonably being installed on a ground site, perhaps in a rebel base? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Hmm. Yeah, so so first of all, um, regarding its campaign-changing status, I mean, it does cost 25,000 credits. It is rarity 8, and it is restricted. And then you have to find two free hard points that the ship's engineer hasn't already dedicated to trying to get, you know, like turbo lasers onto your undersized frigate or whatever. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, it, it the requirements are steep, um, and the use of it has risks. Uh, but yeah, it's potentially campaign changing, and, so, you know, some particularly high-end items are. Um, you know, I mean, in in the same way that a lightsaber is potentially campaign-changing in certain regards, um... I mean, more in Edge of the Empire or Age of Rebellion than in Force and Destiny, where it's more, you know, campaign-changing in a different way. Um, uh, in in this, uh, you know, this, this can potentially have a huge impact on your campaign. Um, my advice to GMs would be, uh, if you are concerned about this impact, don't let them get one. Um, <laughs> but... On the other hand, it can be a really awesome way for you to dispense information to your players. For instance, you need a means to give them plot hooks. Well, they don't have to, like, you know, go to the go back to Rebel Command to get a thing. They can suddenly get a message from the Holonet, like, oh, there's this crisis. You got to deal with this. And they can get that in the middle of some other mission. Um, You know, they can suddenly um, find opportunities they might not have found. You know, you you can use this either, you know, to hand them plot hooks or to have them, you know, like sort of inform where they want to go with the story to you. You you know, you can say, oh, you know, you're scanning the holonet. What are you looking for? And they could say, oh, well, we're looking for, you know, like stranded smugglers. And you can say, oh, well, there's these three, you know, like messages. You could make an astrogation check, try to figure out if you think they're 
you know, in reasonable areas to go to. And then suddenly, you know, you're off on a new story that the players have directed. So it's a really interesting opportunity as a, you know, as a plot thing. And as a GM, this is exactly the sort of thing I'd love to give my players because it's such a great resource for storytelling. Good answer. I, I I just I liked it. I like the fact that you even went there and really talked about Holonet usage in the first place because that really is a key component of diplomacy in the rebellion era and that information movement. You know, mm, so, definitely. Well, and it's been nice to see that play out in Rebels too. Yeah, the huge focal point of Rebels. Um, um the uh, you know I was gonna say um, we I don't think we really knew about it at the time, but you know like this is what the Bridgers were doing, so it's cool. So yes, running it out of your house. Um, Yes, absolutely. With that said, running it out of your house has a big risk, um, (laughs) which is that you can't just move your house. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I I, personally, as a GM, I would absolutely let my players install this in a starship, but I would also inform them that, or sorry, install this in a uh, a a homestead or a uh, a rebel base, but I would also absolutely inform them that, uh, you know, this might mean picking up said rebel base and moving it if they do get found. Yeah. Yeah. Truth. Truth. Okay. All right. Okay. So I want to finish our talk um, by getting into the end of the book and diplomatic missions, because the, the third chapter of this book is really all about integrating diplomats into your games and, and really creating adventures and encounters that, that work best for them. Um, but I mean, Dave, Phil, do you guys want to walk us through this? Because there's there's a lot of stuff to talk about and ask and some really unique things. We do have a few listener questions as well. Okay, sure. Sure, why not? So yeah, as, as you mentioned, this is this is the, the final chapter in the book, or the third chapter in the book, actually. And <clears throat> so we have, I'll just kick it off with a listener question that, uh, that really kind of guides us to one of the big points of the chapter. And this is from Golden Age Lantern. And he wants to know, most players consider combat a core part of the game. This gets back to my comment before about, you know, shoot him up and run and chuck, you know, that sort of thing. Getting back to his question, was it difficult to construct options for diplomat characters that remain viable when once peaceful negotiations become a negotiations with a lightsaber? Hmm. <laughs> Didn't, yeah, didn't I mean, Amadala call that, or, or Padme call that uh, aggressive negotiation? Aggressive negotiation, yes, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it's Star Wars. Even in a political drama game, I would, as a player or as a GM, I would expect there to be some amount of space swashbuckling because that's a big part of the pitch of Star Wars and a big part of the appeal. You know, I wouldn't necessarily play a Star Wars game if I didn't want that, right? Um, and so, yeah, sometimes negotiations are going to break down. And, um Unfortunately, the uh, the writer on a lot of the section, uh, John Dunn, um, did, a, did a really nice job creating, you know, narrative opportunities where you have these stories where, you know, the diplomat has to do something. But to get to that, you know, the uh, the soldier and the spy might have to help get them there. You know, like the someone else might have to keep them safe while they, you know, take care of this. A fight might break out, you know, like while this is going on. So they have to finish the negotiations while, you know, like the rest of the party is holding off the empire or something. Um, so the, like the sample missions work well here where like, these are not, these are solid balanced adventures where, you know, like there's some combat, 
there's some negotiation, there's some, you know, like stealth or skullduggery or what have you. And, you know, like everyone who has their, you know, role in the party gets to have some fun and, and do their thing. And as long as you're moving the spotlight around and making sure that everyone gets a chance, gets a chance to be the star, you kind of can't go wrong. And that seems to be the theme, like a chance for everyone to shine. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that being the case, right? So social encounters are, big, are a big part of that. And a lot of time is devoted to managing social encounters and still, you know, keeping it highly narrative. And so th- with that in mind, can you, can you really talk to us about the design of this section? What went into it? You know, how do developers expect social encounters to be part of the average game? And it, I mean, it may be mundane. It may be, you know, stuff that we've covered before. And, you know, and also keeping in mind of, of the social encounter options, do you have a favorite? Yeah. Um, so to discuss the, the section on, you know, social encounters, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty long and in-depth section. Um, you know, the, the purpose of the section is really to help GMs realize the options they already have. I, is, is what I intended from it and what I think John Dunn did an excellent job executing. Um, you know, uh, so a lot of it is like, here's a, here's a way you could interpret, you know, success or failure or threat or advantage. Here's a, here's a plot twist you could throw in to, you know, like change, change the, the flow of the story. So for instance, you know, the dramatic turn section, you know, like that's how you take what is a negotiation and maybe it turns into a, uh, you know, turns into a suddenly turns into a hostage situation um uh you know or you know something suddenly isn't what you thought it was and so the combat oriented pcs in this story of diplomacy the combat oriented pcs have to jump up and do something and then you shift back to the diplomatic action um so just sort of reminding gms you know that like they have all these tools they have all these tools from storytelling at their disposal and you know Remember, you can use these, you know, there's the section on humor and like when, when you can, you know, like when you can and should use this, how you can, you know, like, um, how you can, you know, like mess around a little bit. One of the things I like to say about Star Wars is that, you know, for all the things that Star Wars is at the, the core of Star Wars appeal in a lot of ways is people bickering in space. Um, it's not, you know, it's only appeal, but it's a, it's an important part and one of the things I've loved most about Rebels is that Rebels gets this. Rebels really gets that a big part of what people loved about Star Wars was people just bickering about petty crap in space. Um, <laughs> often with a big epic storyline in the background. So, you know, that section reminds you, like, that funny moment where two PCs get into an argument with each other over something stupid in the middle of a chase. You know, like, that takes you right back to Han and Leia, you know, tearing each other's... It's tearing each other apart, you know, because they're, you know, you know, they're, they're, they are both frustrated. <laughs> yeah. They're both frustrated and stressed out and like, you know, they both take it out in ridiculous ways. Um, so, you know, it's all about reminding GM about all these story tools they have. And then, you know, the section on using talents gives a little bit more in the way of like hard advice on how to use talents and the way they play into that. But even that sort of playing around with like, remember, these talents, again, these are story tools. You know, they, they have mechanical effects, but they're also story tools and they should be used in 
story-related ways. Um, similarly, the strain threshold and social encounters, you know, that moment where, you know, strain threshold can represent someone passing out, but I always like to say that it, in many circumstances, it shouldn't. In many circumstances, strain threshold should represent somebody getting too angry to do anything effectively or just shutting down or, like, flipping the table and storming out of the room or something. Um, and so having that, you know, having that reminder there reminds you that, like, right, scathing tirade can be used in all sorts of circumstances because if I'm in a negotiation and I'm negotiating with two parties and one of the parties is just causing me problems, I just need to deal with the other, you know, like, maybe I bust out my scathing tirade and try to just stress this guy into leaving and then, you know, try to finish the negotiation with the other person. Um, so there's a lot of resources in the game that already work great for social encounters, and this section is there to help you have some ideas about how to pursue those. And then keep in mind, um, as you get to around page 84, that there are a couple of modular missions lined out there. Uh, mission to Naboo and the Iridonian Separatists, both uh, political missions that you guys can take a look at. We'll see one, two... Like uh, four scenes in each one. It's uh, pretty good. And then, ah, yes. Then there's this. Phil. <laughs> All your base are belong to us. <laughs> so aside from some excellent GM advice on building diplomat-focused campaigns, uh, Max, you gave us a really nice little couple-page resource here of building a rebel base and tying it into your duty. And possibly even making it your 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 duty for either your character or as, as a sub duty for the rest of the party. Um, talk to us about creating a rebel base, and, and, and talk to us about this, about how you can tie this base into your duty and affect it. Because um, the homestead rules, which are very similar to this from Far Horizons, they talk about you know monetary costs of setting these things up or gaining obligation. But I didn't really see any of that here with the rebel base. But there was mention of rebel duty. Yeah, definitely. Well, one of the things we we talk about is that uh, you know, when your you know when your contribution rank goes up, um, you can choose an upgrade for your base um, uh, as one of the things. Um, and we really put costs on these mostly because we figured, well, one, people would sometimes want to buy them when their contribution rank wasn't going to go up, and also just to give you a sense of how much they'd cost. But okay. um, but it does seem like a – but, like, one of the big things is, you know, these – if you have them tied into that contribution rank going up, they can be a really nice, you know, reward for the party. And then you can say, oh, yes, they gave us this – you know, like, they assigned this doctor to help us after we, you know, like, saved this doctor in such and such a planet. And they delivered the, you know, the cure they'd created to this space plague, to this species who's now helping the rebellion. And now this doctor has been assigned to help us. And so suddenly there's this, you know, PC or this NPC rather who has a whole story, you know, who hangs out at your base and fixes you up when you get yourself shot every other session. <laughs> um, so there's a, uh, so that's one nice way to, to do that is just to have it pay out from the contribution rank. Originally there was some discussion about in the, in the early versions of it, there's some discussion about having, you, you know, like, be able to spend duty in chunks to get these things instead of spending credits. But spending duty isn't really... It was. It ended up being too complicated. It was a lot easier to just have it be a contribution rank reward since that's exactly what that's supposed to be for anyway. Yeah, I mean, obligation, you can easily tie that into just having a debt. You get, you get a loan to get those things. But spending duty without it actually being your contribution rank... Eh, kind of counterintuitive to the system. It didn't seem I mean, worth it. 
yeah, how do you lose prestige by getting a new wing for your for your armory or getting a you know, a couple more hangar bays for your for your couple fighters? Exactly. It, it didn't it didn't really work. So we moved away from that and just went to the model of and you know you you can get more than one. Um, you know you get a uh, you get a number of upgrades equal to your contribution rank up to five. So you know it's it's still useful compared to getting a you know getting a starship or what have you. Um, because by the top end of that, you can potentially be getting, you know, 45, 50,000 credits worth of stuff that is quite potent and more sure. potent than you might be able to get just by spending that amount of credits, except on this. Now, Richard Buxton gave us our final question of the night. He asks, short and sweet, bases. Guys have a nice 20 to 30 minute yarn about the ins and outs the party can utilize to having a base, from initial construction to improvement and setting adventures inside it. Advice from our GMs on bringing the base to life would be superb, even if I never listen so I won't get to hear the lowdown. Now, Max, you are welcome to give some advice on this by all means, and we encourage it and are welcome it with open arms, but we're going to lay it out now. In two weeks' time, episode 59 of the Order 66 podcast will be all about bases and homesteads. Mm-hmm. We're going to dig about into... about the base. <laughs> about the base, about the base, and homesteads. We're going to dig into the ins and outs of creating a home for your party, whether you're a freebooter on the Outer Rim or you are elbows deep in the fight against the Empire. And, Max, any... any tips or tricks briefly before we uh, cut this out uh, concerning base construction and maintenance? Um, yeah, I think the, the biggest thing I would say is it, it's nice if, and this might require a bit of coordination between the players and the GM, but it's really nice if when you get that contribution rank up, the thing you get can relate to that in some way. Um, this is less true for That's fair. Hom- homesteads. They're a little more. Although, in the same way, you take on obligation from a specific person, it could relate. The thing you get could relate to that. But mm-hmm. um, you know, the uh, you know, having if you do a complete a mission, if you all get a bunch of obligate or a bunch of duty from completing a mission to you know, like steal weapon supplies, you know, like you can get an armory, um, you know, and you know that would. The nice thing is you're going to do lots of things that will contribute to your contribution rank. So maybe the GM just says to the players, okay, which thing do you guys want and why do you get it? You know, like, what's the story behind this laboratory you want? And they can say, oh, well, remember we had that mission to rescue those scientists from this place. And so, you know, and so we're going to, you know, have them build us a laboratory or something like that. So, you know, you as a GM, you ask the players to tie it to the story for you, which is a great GMing trick I use all the time because I like to be uh, lazy when I can get away with it as a GM. Um, <laughs> and it also invests the players in it. So suddenly, like, you know... Uh, now, in my experience, when offered that, players will always say, oh, well, we want more NPCs. And then I'll be like, Ugh, I have to do more voices. But um, more new voices, because I can only do, like, three voices. So... <laughs> Um, so, uh, you know, it's usually that, but having, having the players tie it into something for you, um, or working together with the players to tie it in, or if the players are comfortable with it, just let the GM flesh it out and tie it into the story in some way. This is what you get now. Okay. That's kind of cool. Very cool. Very good advice. 
as we close the book on this episode. <laughs> yes, we do. And, uh, and with, with, with that note, it's time for the sad piano music. <laughs> <laughs> Max, dude, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, and, and welcome to the family of Order 66, man. Um, it was really great of you to take your time. I know this is a huge chunk of your time um, and preparation and everything else to really go through this with us and for all the other listeners and fans of this system as well um and and ironing out all the questions dude we are greatly appreciative thank you thank you so much for having me on it was really great dude well hopefully we can have you back assuming we didn't uh, scare you too much no not at all not at all (laughs) um so uh any before you go man any big ffg news or announcements you want to pimp out maybe for anyone coming to gen con or anything like that um uh you should go to our website and uh, <laughs> see all the cool stuff we are talking about. Uh, let's see what's on the front page of the Fantasy Flight Games website right now. Which is uh, go to Gen Con. Yes. We'll have some news. <laughs> yes, go to Gen Con. We, we will have exciting news. Um, I feel like we announced something big recently, but I don't want to guess on this. So I'm not going to. Well, listeners, uh, listeners can, of course, go to www.fantasyflightgames.com to get all this news and excitingness. But um, obviously, the core rulebook is coming. Yeah. Yes, uh, it is. It is coming. I don't know exactly when. Keep your eyes on the website for that. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's what I'm most excited to have out there. Um, yeah. Uh, I feel like we'll have like th- that's it now. I've got everything I need to do anything I want ever. <laughs> well, I hope not because we're hoping to sell you more books. Oh, well, gosh, you know, we're just not going to buy them. You know what I mean? Right? Because that's how we operate, us gamers. Um, (laughs) But it's good stuff. Max, thanks again. Thank Um, you. It's great to be here. Really appreciate it. Guys, we want you to become a member of the Gamer Nation. Head to d20radio.com, where you can uh, click on the link to get to our forums, register, and post your mind. Also, don't forget... We have two new Patreon levels that you may really want to take advantage of. Head to patreon.com slash d20radio. Throw us a few bucks a month if you want to show your support for the cast and the network. Keep the lights on. Keep our writers paid for their work. And um, uh, also, uh, uh, while you're there at the Patreon, consider those special pledge levels. They may be something you really, really want. And don't forget about our liner contest if you want a free copy of the Force and Destiny core rulebook, which is in our hands right now. You have two weeks to get it to us. And uh, with a, uh, a, a specialty liner that you create, you can email it to, again, gmchris at d20radio.com or call it in to the D20 Radio hotline at 262-D20-RADIO. That's 262-320-7234. We will see you all in two weeks' time with a very special discussion on bases and homesteads, where I highly anticipate the three of us, Dave and Phil and myself, We'll engage in maybe a little uh, base build-off. What do you guys say? (laughs) Sounds interesting. Oh, I'm going to have turrets. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. I'm going to have no trouble Um, (laughs) in my base. Guys, thank you all for listening. Max, thanks again. Everyone, this is GM Chris wishing you peace, love, and good gaming. Keep dash rolling. And may the dice be with you.
This podcast and related website are not endorsed by Lucasfilm Limited, the Walt Disney Corporation, 20th Century Fox, or Fantasy Flight Games. It is intended for educational and informational purposes only. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, all names, pictures, or references to any Star Wars vehicles, characters, or other Star Wars related items are registered trademarks of Lucasfilm Limited, Fantasy Flight Games, or their respective trademark or copyright holders. All original content of this podcast, including any audio, visual, or textual information, is the intellectual property of the Order 66 Podcast and the Gamer Nation LLC. Mm-hmm.